0: Part One, Chapter One of Anna Karenina. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marian Spiegel. Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. Part One Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Chapter One. All happy families resemble one another. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. All was confusion in the house of the Oblonskys. The wife had discovered that her husband was having an intrigue with a French governess who had been in their employ, and she declared that she could not live in the same house with him. This condition of things had lasted now three days, and was causing deep discomfort, not only to the husband and wife, but also to all the members of the family and the domestics. All the members of the family and the domestics felt that there was no sense in their living together, and that in any hotel people meeting casually had more mutual interests than they, the members of the family and the domestics of the house of Oblonsky. The wife did not come out of her own rooms. The husband had not been at home for two days. The children were running over the whole house as if they were crazy, the english maid was angry with the housekeeper and wrote to a friend begging her to find her a new place the head cook had departed the evening before just at dinner-time the kitchen-maid and the coachman demanded their wages on the third day after the quarrel prince Stepan Arkadyevitch oblonsky steva as he was called in society awoke at the usual hour that is to say about eight o'clock in the morning not in his wife's chamber but in his library, on a leather-covered divan. He turned his portly pampered body on the springs of the divan, as if intending to go to sleep again, and as he did so, he threw his arm round the cushion and pressed his cheek to it. But suddenly he sat up and opened his eyes. "'Well, well. How was it?' he mused, recalling a dream. "'Yes. How was it?' "'Yes.' Aliban was giving a dinner at Darmstadt.' "'No, not at Darmstadt, but it was something American.' "'Yes, but that Darmstadt was in America.' "'Yes, Aliban was giving a dinner on glass tables.' "'Yes, and the tables sang Il Mio Tesoro. "'No, not Il Mio Tesoro, but something better, and some little water-bottles. "'They were women,' said he, continuing his recollections.' Prince Stephen's eyes flashed gaily, and he smiled as he said to himself, "'Yes, it was very good, very good. There was something extremely elegant about it, but you can't tell it in words, and when you are awake you can't express the reality even in thought.' Then, as he noticed a ray of sunlight which came in at the side of one of the heavy window-curtains, he gaily set his feet down from the divan, found his gilt morocco slippers, they had been embroidered for him by his wife the year before as a birthday present and according to an old custom which he kept up for nine years he without rising stretched out his hand to the place where in his chamber hung his dressing-gown and then he suddenly remembered how and why he had been sleeping not in his wife's chamber but in the library the smile vanished from his face and he frowned "Oh, oh 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 he groaned as he recollected everything that had occurred, and before his mind arose once more all the details of the quarrel with his wife, all the hopelessness of his situation, and most lamentable of all, his own fault. No, she will not, and she cannot forgive me. And what is the worst of it? T'was my own fault, my own fault, and yet I am not to blame. In that lies all the tragedy of it, he said to himself. Ah, ugh! ugh. Ugh! he kept muttering in his despair, as though over the exceedingly unpleasant consequences that would result to him from this quarrel. The most disagreeable moment was at the very first, when, as he came home from the theatre, happy and self-satisfied, bringing a monstrous pair for his wife, he did not find her in the sitting-room, nor, to his surprise, was she in the library, and at last he saw her in her chamber holding the fatal, all-revealing letter in her hand.' she dolly that forever busy and fussy and foolish creature as he always considered her was sitting motionless with the note in her hand and looked at him with an expression of terror despair and wrath what is this this she demanded pointing to the note and as often happens Stepan's torment at this recollection was caused less by the fact itself than by the answer which he gave to those words of his wife. His experience at that moment was the same as other people have had when unexpectedly detected in some shameful deed. He was unable to prepare his face for the situation caused by his wife's discovery of his sin. Instead of getting offended, denying it, justifying himself, asking forgiveness, or even showing indifference, anything would have been better than what he really did. In spite of himself, by a reflex action of the brain, as Stefan Arkadyevich explained it, for he loved physiology. Absolutely in spite of himself he suddenly smiled with his ordinary good-humoured and therefore stupid smile. He could not forgive himself for that stupid smile. When Dolly saw that smile, she trembled as with physical pain, poured forth a torrent of bitter words, quite in accordance with her natural temper, and fled from the room. Since that time she had not been willing to see her husband. That stupid smile caused the whole trouble, thought Stepan Arkadyevitch. But what is to be done about it? What is to be done? He asked himself in despair, and found no answer. End of chapter 1 Part 1, Chapter 2 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this librivox recording is in the public domain read by Marianne spiegel Stefan arkadyevitch was a sincere man as far as he himself was concerned he could not practice self-deception and persuade himself that he repented of his behavior he could not as yet feel sorry that he a handsome and susceptible man of four and thirty was not now in love with his wife the mother of his five living and two buried children, though she was only a year his junior. He regretted only that he had not succeeded in hiding it better from her, but he felt the whole weight of his situation, and pitied his wife, his children, and himself. Possibly he would have had better success in hiding his peccadilloes from his wife had he realized that this knowledge would have had such an effect upon her. He had never before thought clearly of this question, "'but he had a dim idea that his wife had long been aware "'that he was not faithful to her, "'and looked at it through her fingers. "'As she had lost her freshness, "'was beginning to look old, "'was no longer pretty, "'and far from distinguished and entirely commonplace, "'though she was an excellent mother of a family, "'he had thought that she would allow "'her innate sense of justice to plead for him, "'but it had proved to be quite the contrary. "'Ugh! How wretched!' "'I—I—I—how wretched!' said Prince Stephen to himself, over and over, and could not find any way out of the difficulty. "'And how well everything was going until this happened! How delightfully we lived! "'She was content, happy with the children. I never interfered with her in any way. "'I allowed her to do as she pleased with the children and the household. "'To be sure it was bad that she had been the governess in our own house, that was bad.' There is something trivial and common in playing the gallant to one's own governess. But what a governess. He vividly recalled Mademoiselle roland's black roguish eyes and her smile. But then, while she was here in the house with us, I did not permit myself any liberties, and the worst of all is that she is already. And this must needs happen just despite me. Ay, ay, ay. But what? What is to be done? there was no answer except that common answer which life gives to all the most complicated and unsolvable questions. This answer. You must live according to circumstances. In other words, forget yourself. But as you cannot forget yourself in sleep, at least till night, as you cannot return to that music which the water-bottle woman sang, therefore you must forget yourself in the dream of life. We shall see, by and by, said Stefan Arkadyevitch to himself, and rising he put on his grey dressing-gown with blue silk lining, tied the tassels into a knot, and took a full breath into his ample lungs. Then, with his usual firm step, his legs spread somewhat apart, and easily bearing the solid weight of his body, he went over to the window, lifted the curtain, and loudly rang the bell. It was instantly answered by his old friend and valet, Matva who came in bringing his clothes, boots, and a telegram. Behind Matva came the barber with the shaving utensils. Are there any papers from the courthouse? asked Stefan Arkadyevich, taking the telegram and taking his seat in front of the mirror. On the breakfast-table, replied Matva, looking inquiringly and with sympathy at his master, and after an instant's pause added with a sly smile. They have come from the boss of the livery-stable. Stefan Arkadyevitch made no reply, and only looked at Matva in the mirror. By the look which they interchanged, it could be seen how they understood each other. The look of Stefan Arkadyevich seemed to ask, "'Why did you say that? Don't you know?' Matva thrust his hands in his jacket-pockets, kicked out his leg, and silently, good-naturedly, almost smiling, looked back to his master. "'I ordered them to come on Sunday, until then, that you and I should not be annoyed without reason.' said he, with a phrase evidently ready on his tongue. Stefan Arkadyevich perceived that Matva wanted to make some jesting reply and attract attention to himself. Tearing open the telegram, he read it, using his wits to make out the words that were as usual blindly written, and his face brightened. Matva, sister Anna Arkadyevna will be here to-morrow, said he, staying for a moment the plump, gleaming hand of his barber who was making a pink path through his long curly whiskers. "'Thank God!' cried Matva, showing by this exclamation that he understood as well as his master the significance of this arrival, that it meant that Anna Arkadyevna, Prince Stefan's loving sister, might effect a reconciliation between husband and wife. "'Alone or with her husband?' asked Matva. Stefan Arkadyevich could not speak, as the barber was engaged on his upper lip, but he lifted one finger." Matva nodded his head toward the mirror alone, get her room ready. Report to Darya Alexandrovna, and let her decide to Darya Alexandrovna repeated Matva rather sceptically, yes, report to her, and here take the telegram, give it to her, and do as she says. You want to try an experiment was the thought in Matva's mind, but he only said, I will obey." By this time Stefan Arkadyevitch had finished his bath and his toilet, and was just putting on his clothes, when Matva, stepping slowly with squeaking boots, and with the telegram in his hand, returned to the room. The barber was no longer there. "'Darya Alexandrovna bade me tell you she is going away. Do just as he, as you, please about it,' said Matva, with a smile lurking in his eyes. Thrusting his hands into his pockets, and bending his head to one side, he looked at his master. Stepan Arkadyevich was silent. Then a good-humored and rather pitiful smile lighted up his handsome face. "'Well, Matva?' he said, shaking his head. "'It is nothing, sir. She will come to her senses,' answered Matva. "'Will come to her senses?' "'Sure she will.' "'Do you think so? Who is there?' asked Stepan Arkadyevich, "'hearing the rustle of a woman's dress behind the door. "'It's me,' said a powerful and pleasant female voice, "'and in the doorway appeared the severe and pimply face "'of Matryona Philomonovna, the nurse. "'Well, what is it, Matryosha?' asked Stepan Arkadyevich, "'going to meet her at the door. "'Notwithstanding the fact that Stepan Arkadyevich "'was entirely in the wrong as regarded his wife, "'and he himself acknowledged it, "'still almost everyone in the house,' Even the old nurse, Darya Alexandrovna's chief friend, was on his side. Well, what? he asked gloomily. You go down, sir, ask her forgiveness, just once. Perhaps the Lord will bring it out right. She is tormenting herself grievously, and it is pitiful to see her. And everything in the house is going crisscross. The children, sir, you must have pity on them. Ask her forgiveness, sir. What is to be done? No gains without pains. But you see, she won't accept an apology. But you do your part. God is merciful, sir. Pray to God. God is merciful. Very well, then. Come on, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, suddenly turning red in the face. Very well. Let me have my clothes, said he, turning to Matva, and resolutely throwing off his dressing-gown." Motva had everything all ready for him, and stood blowing off something invisible from the shirt, stiff as a horse-collar, and with evident satisfaction he put it over his master's well-groomed body. End of chapter 2 Part 1 Chapter 3 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel having dressed stepan arkadyevich sprinkled himself with perfume straightened the sleeves of his shirt according to his usual routine put into his various pockets cigarettes his letter-case matches his watch with its double chain and locket and shaking out his handkerchief feeling clean well perfumed healthy and physically happy in spite of his unhappiness he went out somewhat unsteadily into the dining-room where his coffee was already waiting for him, and next the coffee, his letters, and the papers from the courthouse. He read the letters. One was very disagreeable, from a merchant who was negotiating for the purchase of a forest on his wife's estate. It was necessary to sell this forest, but now nothing could be done about it until a reconciliation was effected with his wife, most unpleasant it was to think that his pecuniary interests in this approaching transaction were complicated with his reconciliation to his wife, and the thought that he might be influenced by this interest, that his desire for reconciliation with his wife was on account of the sale of the forest, this thought mortified him. Having finished his letters, Stepan Arkadyevitch took up the papers from the courthouse, rapidly turned over the leaves of two deeds, made several notes with a big pencil, and then pushing them away, took his coffee. While he was drinking, he opened a morning journal still damp, and began to read. Stefan Arkadyevitch subscribed to a liberal paper, and read it. It was not extreme in its views, but advocated those principles which the majority held. And though he was not really interested in science, or art, or politics, he strongly adhered to such views on all these subjects as the majority, including his paper, advocated, and he changed them only when the majority changed them. Or, more correctly, he did not change them, but they themselves imperceptibly changed in him. Stefan Arkadyevitch never chose principles or opinions, but these principles and opinions came to him, just as he never chose the shape of a hat or coat, but took those that others wore and, living as he did in fashionable society, through the necessity of some mental activity, developing generally in a man's best years, it was as indispensable for him to have views as to have a hat. If there was any reason why he preferred liberal views rather than the conservative direction which many of his circle followed, it was not because he found a liberal tendency more rational, but because he found it better suited to his mode of life." The Liberal Party declared that everything in Russia was wretched, and the fact was that Stepan Arkadyevich had a good many debts and was decidedly short of money. The Liberal Party said that marriage was a defunct institution, and that it needed to be remodelled, and in fact domestic life afforded Stepan Arkadyevich very little pleasure, and compelled him to lie and to pretend what was contrary to his nature. The Liberal Party said, or rather took it for granted, that religion is only a curb on the barbarous portion of the community and in fact stepan arkadyevitch could not bear the shortest prayer without pain in his knees and he could not comprehend the necessity of all these awful and high-sounding words about the other world when it was so pleasant to live in this moreover stepan arkadyevitch who liked a merry jest was sometimes fond of scandalizing a quiet man by saying that any one who was proud of his origin ought not to stop at Rurik, and deny his earliest ancestor, the monkey. Thus the liberal tendency had become a habit with Stefan Arkadyevitch, and he liked his paper, just as he liked his cigar after dinner, because of the slight haziness which it caused in his brain. He was now reading the leading editorial, which proved that in our day a cry is raised, without reason over the danger that radicalism may swallow up all the conservative elements, and that government ought to take measures to crush the hydra of revolution, and that, on the contrary, according to our opinion, the danger lies not in this imaginary hydra of revolution, but in the inertia of traditions which block progress, and so on. He read through another article on finance which made mention of Bretham and Mill, and dropped some sharp hints for the ministry with his peculiar quickness of comprehension he appreciated each point, from whom and against whom and on what occasion it was directed, and this as usual afforded him some amusement. But his satisfaction was poisoned by the remembrance of Matriona's advice, and on the unfortunate state of his domestic affairs. He read also that Count von Buist was reported to have gone to Weisbaden, and that there was to be no more grey hair, He read about the sale of a light carriage and a young woman's advertisement for a place. But these items did not afford him quiet, ironical satisfaction, as usual. Having finished his paper, his second cup of coffee, and a buttered roll, he stood up, shook the crumbs of the roll from his waistcoat, and, filling his broad chest, smiled joyfully, not because there was anything extraordinarily pleasant in his mind, but the joyful smile was caused by good digestion. But this joyful smile immediately brought back the memory of everything, and he sank into thought. The voices of two children, stepan Arkadyevitch knew they were Grisha, his youngest boy, and Tanya, his eldest daughter, were now heard behind the door. They were dragging something and upset it. I told you not to put the passengers on top, cried the little girl in English. Now pick them up. Everything is in confusion, said stepan Arkadyevitch to himself now here the children are, running wild, and going to the door he called them. They dropped the little box which served them for a railway train, and ran to their father. The little girl, her father's favorite, ran in boldly, threw her arms around his neck, and laughingly hugged him, enjoying as usual the odor which exhaled from his whiskers. Then, kissing his face, reddened by his bending position, and beaming with tenderness, the little girl unclasped her hands, and wanted to run away again, but her father held her back. What is Mama doing? he asked, caressing his daughter's smooth, soft neck. How are you? he added, smiling at the boy who stood saluting him. He acknowledged he had less love for the little boy, yet he tried to be impartial. But the boy felt the difference and did not smile back in reply to his father's chilling smile. Mama, she's up, answered the little girl. Stefan Arkadyevitch sighed. "'Of course she has spent another sleepless night,' he said to himself. "'Well, is she cheerful?' "'The little girl knew that there was trouble between her father and her mother, "'and that her mother could not be cheerful, and that her father ought to know it, "'and that he was dissembling when he questioned her so lightly. "'And she blushed for her father. "'He instantly perceived it, and also turned red. "'I don't know,' she said. "'She told me that we were not to have lessons this morning,' were we're to go with Miss Hull over to Grandmother's. Well, then, run along, Trenchurachka Moya. Oh, yes, wait, he said, still detaining her and smoothing her delicate little hand. He took down from the mantelpiece a box of candy which he had placed there the day before, and gave her two pieces, selecting her favorite chocolate and vanilla. For Grisha, she asked, pointing to the chocolate. Yes, yes and still smoothing her soft shoulder, he kissed her on the neck and hair and let her go. "'The carriage is at the door,' said Matva, and he added, "'A woman is here, a petitioner.' "'Has she been here long?' demanded Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'Half an hour.' "'How many times have you been told to announce visitors instantly?' "'I had to get your coffee ready,' replied Matva, in his kind, rough voice, at which it was impossible to take offence. "'Well, show her in quick,' said Oblonsky, frowning with annoyance. The petitioner, the wife of Captain Kalanin, asked some impossible and nonsensical favor, but Stefan Arkadyevitch, according to his custom, gave her a comfortable seat, listened to her story without interrupting, and then gave her cheerful advice to whom and how to make her application, and in lively and eloquent style wrote, in his big, scrawling, but handsome and legible hand, a note to the person who might aid her. Having dismissed the captain's wife, Stefan Arkadyevich took his hat and stood for a moment, trying to remember whether he had forgotten anything. He seemed to have forgotten nothing except what he wanted to forget—his wife. Ah, yes. He dropped his head, and a gloomy expression came over his handsome face. To go or not to go, he said to himself, and an inner voice told him that it was not advisable to go, that there was no way out of it except through deception, that to straighten— to smooth out their relations, was impossible, because it was impossible to make her attractive and lovable again, or to make him an old man insensible to passion. Nothing but deception and lying could come of it, and deception and lying were opposed to his nature. "'But it must be done sometime. It can't remain so always,' said he, striving to gain courage. He straightened himself, took out a cigarette, lighted it, puffed at it two or three times, threw it into a mother-of-pearl-lined ash-tray, went with quick steps through the sitting-room, and opened the door into his wife's sleeping-room. End of chapter 3 Part 1 Chapter 4 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This slippervox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel Darya Alexandrovna, surrounded by all sorts of things thrown in confusion about the room, was standing before an open chiffonier, from which she was removing the contents. She had on a dressing-sack, and the thin braids of her once luxuriant and beautiful hair were pinned back. Her face was thin and sunken, and her big eyes, protruding from her pale, worn face, had an expression of terror. When she heard her husband's steps, she stopped in her work, and, "'gazing at the door, vainly tried to give her face a stern and forbidding expression. "'She was conscious that she feared him, and that she dreaded the coming interview. "'She was in the act of doing what she had attempted to do a dozen times during those three days, "'gathering up her own effects, and those of her children, to carry to her mother's house, "'and again she could not bring herself to do it. "'Yet now, as before, she said to herself that things could not remain as they were, that she must take some measure to punish him, to put him to shame, to have some revenge on him, if only for a small part of the anguish that he had caused her. She still kept saying that she should leave him, but she felt that it was impossible. It was impossible because she could not cease to consider him her husband, and to love him. Moreover, she confessed that if here, in her own home, she had barely succeeded in looking after her five children, It would be far worse where she was going with them in the course of these three days the youngest child had been made ill by eating some poor soup and the rest had been obliged to go almost dinnerless the night before she felt that it was impossible to leave yet for the sake of deceiving herself she was collecting her things and pretending that she was going when she saw her husband she thrust her hands into a drawer of the chiffonier as if trying to find something AND LOOKED AT HIM ONLY WHEN HE CAME UP CLOSE TO HER. BUT HER FACE, TO WHICH SHE HAD INTENDED TO GIVE A STERN AND RESOLUTE EXPRESSION, SHOWED HER CONFUSION AND ANGUISH OF MIND. "'Dolly,' said he, in a gentle, subdued voice. HE HUNG HIS HEAD AND TRIED TO ASSUME A HUMBLE AND SUBMISSIVE mien, BUT NEVERTHELESS HE WAS RADIANT WITH FRESH LIFE AND HEALTH. SHE GAVE HIM A QUICK GLANCE WHICH TOOK IN HIS WHOLE FIGURE FROM HEAD TO FOOT radiant with life and health. Yes, he is happy and contented, she said to herself, but I, and this good nature which makes everybody like him so well, and praise him, is revolting to me. I hate this good nature of his. Her mouth grew firm, and the muscles of her right cheek contracted. She looked pale and nervous. What do you want? she demanded, in a quick unnatural tone. "'Dolly,' he repeated, with a quaver in his voice. "'Anna is coming to-day.' "'Well, what is that to me? I cannot receive her,' she cried. "'Still—it must be done, Dolly. "'Go away! Go away! Go away!' she cried, without looking at him, as if her words were torn from her by physical agony. Stepan Arkadyevich might be calm enough as his thoughts turned to his wife.' He might have some hope that it would all straighten itself out, according to Matva's prediction, and he might be able tranquilly to read his morning paper and drink his coffee. But when he saw her tortured, suffering face, when he heard that resigned and hopeless tone of her voice, he breathed hard, something rose in his throat, and his eyes filled with tears. My God! What have I done? For God's sake! See... He could not say another word for the sobs that choked him. She shut the drawer violently and looked at him. Dolly, what can I say? Only one thing. Forgive me. Just think. Cannot nine years of my life pay for a single moment? A moment. She let her eyes fall and listened to what he was going to say, as if beseeching him in some way to persuade her of his innocence. A single moment of temptation, he ended, and was going to continue, but at that word Dolly's lips again closed tight, as if from physical pain, and again the muscles of her right cheek contracted. "'Go away! Go away from here!' she cried still more impetuously, "'and don't speak to me of your temptations and your wretched conduct!' She attempted to leave the room, but she almost fell, and was obliged to lean upon a chair for support." Oblonsky's face grew melancholy, his lips trembled, and his eyes filled with tears. "'Dolly,' said he, almost sobbing, "'for God's sake, think of the children. They are not to blame. I am the one to blame. Punish me. Tell me how I can atone for my fault. I am ready to do anything. I am guilty. No words can tell how guilty I am. But—Dolly, forgive me!' She sat down, He heard her quick, hard breathing, and his soul was filled with pity for her. She tried several times to speak, but could not utter a word. He waited. "'You think of the children, because you like to play with them. But I think of them, too, and I know what they have lost,' said she, repeating one of the phrases that during the last three days she had many times repeated to herself. She had used the familiar «tui», «thou», And he looked at her with gratitude, and made a movement as if to take her hand, but she turned away from him with abhorrence. "'I have consideration for my children, and therefore I would do all in the world to save them. But I do not myself know how I can best save them, by taking them from their father, or by leaving them with a father who is a libertine—yes, a libertine. Now tell me after this. This has happened. Can we live together?' "'Is it possible—tell me, is it possible?' she demanded, raising her voice. "'When my husband, the father of my children, has a love affair with their governess—' "'But what is to be done about it? What is to be done?' said he, interrupting with broken voice, not knowing what he said, and letting his head sink lower and lower. "'You are revolting to me! You are insulting!' she cried, with increasing anger. "'Your tears are water!' You never loved me. You have no heart, no honor. You are abominable, revolting, and henceforth you are a stranger to me. Yes, a perfect stranger. And she repeated with spiteful anger this word stranger, which was so terrible in her own ears. He looked at her, and the anger expressed in her face alarmed and surprised him. He had no realizing sense that his pity exasperated his wife. He saw that he felt sympathy for her, but not love. No, she hates me. She will not forgive me, he said to himself. This is terrible, terrible, he cried. At this moment one of the children in the next room, having apparently had a fall, began to cry. Darya Alexandrovna listened and her face suddenly softened. She seemed to collect her thoughts for a few seconds, as if she did not know where she was and what was happening to her, Then, quickly rising, she hastened to the door. At any rate, she loves my child, thought Oblonsky, who had noticed the change in her face as she heard the little one's cry. My child! How then can she hate me? Dolly, just one word more, he said, following her. If you follow me, I will call the domestics, the children. Let them all know that you are infamous. I leave you this very day, and you may live here with your paramour, and she went out and slammed the door. Stepan Arkadyevitch sighed, wiped his face, and softly left the room. Matva says this can be settled, but how? I don't see the possibility. Oh, oh, how terrible! And how foolishly she shrieked, said he to himself, as he recalled her cry and the words infamous and paramour. Perhaps the chambermaids heard her horribly foolish, horribly Stefan Arkadyevitch stood by himself a few seconds, rubbed his eyes, sighed, and then, throwing out his chest, left the room. It was Friday, and in the dining-room the German clockmaker was winding the clock. Stefan Arkadyevich remembered a joke that he had made about this punctilious German clockmaker to the effect that he must have been wound up himself for a lifetime for the purpose of winding clocks, and he smiled. Stefan Arkadyevich loved a good joke. Perhaps it will straighten itself out. That's a good little phrase. Straighten itself out, he thought. I must tell that. Matva, he shouted, and when the old servant appeared, he said, Have Maria put the best room in order for Anna Arkadyevna. Very well. Stefan Arkadyevich took his fur coat and started down the steps. Shall you dine at home? asked Matva, as he escorted him down. That depends. Here. "'Take this if you need to spend anything,' said he, taking out a bill of ten roubles from his pocket-book. That will be enough.' "'Whether it is enough or not, it will have to do,' said Matva, as he shut the carriage-door and went up the steps. Meantime Darya Alexandrovna, having pacified the child, and knowing by the sound of the carriage that he was gone, came back to her room. This was her sole refuge from the domestic troubles that besieged her as soon as she went out.' Even during the short time that she had been in the nursery, the English maid, and Matryona Philemonovna, asked her all sorts of questions demanding immediate attention, questions which she alone could answer. What clothes should they put on the children for their walk, and should they give them milk, should they send for another cook? Ach, oh, leave me alone, leave me alone, she cried, and, hastening back to the chamber, she sat down in the place where she had been talking with her husband. Then, clasping her thin hands, on whose fingers the rings would scarcely stay, she reviewed the whole conversation. He has gone, but has he broken with her? she asked herself. Does he still continue to see her? Why didn't I ask him? No, no, we cannot live together, even if we continue to live in the same house. We are only strangers, strangers forever." she repeated, with a strong emphasis on the word that hurt her so cruelly. "'How I loved him! And even now, do I not love him? Do I not love him even more than before?' "'That is the most terrible thing,' she was beginning to say. But she did not finish out her thought, because Matryona Philimonovna put her head in at the door. "'Give orders to send for my brother,' said she. "'He will get dinner.' If you don't, it will be like yesterday, when the children did not have anything to eat for six hours. Very good. I will come and give the order. Have you sent for some fresh milk? And Darya Alexandrovna entered into her daily tasks, and in them forgot her sorrow for the time being. End of chapter 4 Part 1. Chapter 5 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy TRANSLATED BY NATHAN Haskell DOYLE this SLIPRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN READ BY MARY Ann SPIEGEL Stefan Arkadyevich had done well at school, by reason of his excellent natural gifts, but he was lazy and mischievous, and consequently had been at the foot of his class. But, in spite of his irregular habits, his low rank in the service, and his youth, he, nevertheless, held an important salaried position as Nachalnik, or president of one of the courts in moscow this place he had secured through the good offices of his sister anna's husband alexey alexandrovich Karinin, who occupied one of the most influential positions in the ministry of which he was a member but even if Karinin had not been able to get this place for his brother-in-law a hundred other people brothers sisters cousins second cousins uncles aunts would have got it for steva oblonsky or some places good together with the six thousand roubles salary which he needed for his establishment his affairs being somewhat out of order in spite of his wife's considerable fortune half the people of moscow and st petersburg were relatives or friends of Stepan arkadyevich he was born into the society of the rich and powerful of this world a third of the older officials attached to the court and in the government employ had been friends of his father and had known him from the time when he wore petticoats A second third addressed him familiarly in the second person singular. The others were, hail-fellows well met. He had, therefore, as his friends, all those whose function it is to dispense earthly blessings in the shape of places, leases, concessions, and the like, and who could not neglect their own. And so Oblonsky had no special difficulty in obtaining an excellent place. All he had to do was not to shirk, not to be jealous, not to be quarrelsome, not to be thin-skinned, and he never gave way to these faults, because of his natural good temper. It would have seemed ridiculous to him if he had been told that he could not have any salary place that he wanted, because it did not seem to him that he demanded anything extraordinary. He asked only for what his companions were obtaining, and he felt that he was as capable as any of them of performing the duties of such a position. Stefan Arkadyevitch was liked by everyone for his good and amiable character, And his unimpeachable honesty. There was, moreover, something in his brilliant and attractive personality, in his bright, sparkling eyes, his black brows, his hair, his vivid colouring, which exercised a strong physical influence as a friendliness and gaiety on those who came in touch with him. Ah, Steva, Oblonsky, here he is, people would generally say, with a smile of pleasure. Even if it happened, that the results of meeting him were not particularly gratifying nevertheless people were just as glad to meet him the second day and the third after filling for three years the office of Nichalnik, of one of the chief judiciary positions in moscow Stepan arkadyevich had gained not only the friendship but also the respect of his colleagues both those above and those below him in station as well as of all who had dealings with him the principal qualities that had gained him this universal esteem were first his extreme indulgence for people and this was founded on his knowledge of his own weaknesses secondly his absolute liberality which was not the liberalism which he read about in the newspapers but that which was in his blood and caused him to be agreeable to every one and in whatever station in life and thirdly and principally his perfect indifference to the business which he transacted so that he never lost his temper, and therefore never made mistakes. As soon as he reached his tribunal, Stefan Arkadyevich, escorted by the solemn Swiss who bore his portfolio, went to his little private office, put on his uniform, and proceeded to the courtroom. The clerks and other employees all stood up, bowing eagerly and respectfully. Stefan Arkadyevich, as usual, hastened to his place, shook hands with his colleagues, and took his seat. He got off some pleasantry and made some remarks suitable to the occasion, and then opened the session. No one better than he understood how far to go within the limits of freedom, frankness, and that official dignity, which is so useful in the expression of official business. A clerk came with papers, and, with the free and yet respectful air common to all who surrounded Stefan Arkadyevich, spoke in the familiarly liberal tone which Stefan Arkadyevich had introduced. We have at last succeeded in obtaining reports to the government of penza here they are if you care to so we have them at last said stepan arkadyevitch touching the document with his finger now then gentlemen and the proceedings began if they knew he said to himself as he bent his head with an air of importance while the report was read how much their president only half an hour since looked like a naughty schoolboy and a gleam of amusement came into his eyes as he listened to the report. The session generally lasted till two o'clock without interruption, and was followed by recess and luncheon. The clock had not yet struck two, when the great glass doors of the courtroom were suddenly thrown open, and someone entered. All the members, glad of any diversion, looked round from where they sat under the emperor's portrait, and behind the certzalo, or proclamation table, but the doorkeeper instantly ejected the intruder, and shut the door on him after the business was read through stefan Arkadyevitch arose stretched himself and in spite of sacrifice to the liberalism of the time took out his cigarette while still in the courtroom, and then passed into his private office two of his colleagues the aged veteran nikitin and the chamberlain grinovich followed him there'll be time enough to finish after luncheon said oblonsky how we are rushing through with it replied nikitin this feyman must be a precious rascal, said Grinovitch, alluding to one of the characters in the affair which they had been investigating. Stefan Arkadyevich knitted his brows at Grinovitch's words, as if to signify that it was not the right thing to form snap judgments, and he made no reply. Who was it came into the courtroom? He asked of the doorkeeper. Someone who entered without permission, Your Excellency, while my back was turned. He asked to see you. I said, when the court adjourns, then— Where is he? Uh, "'Probably in the vestibule. He was there just now. Ah, there he is,' said the doorkeeper, pointing to a solidly built, broad-shouldered man with a curly beard who, without taking off his sheepskin cap, was lightly and quickly running up the well-worn steps of the stone staircase. Aline Chinovnik, on his way down, with a portfolio under his arm, stopped to look, with some indignation, at the newcomer's feet, and turned to Oblonsky with a glance of inquiry. Stefan Arkadyevich stood at the top of the staircase, and his bright, good-natured face, set off by the embroidered collar of his uniform, was still more radiant when he recognized the visitor. "'Here he is! Levin at last!' he cried with a friendly, ironical smile, as he looked at his approaching friend. "'What, you got tired of waiting for me, and have come to find me in this den?' he went on to say, not satisfied with pressing his hand, but kissing him affectionately. "'Have you been in town long?' "'I just got here, and was in a hurry to see you,' said Levin, looking about him timidly, and at the same time with a fierce and anxious expression. "'Well, come into my office,' said Stepan Arkadyevitch, who was aware of his visitor's egotistic sensitiveness, and, taking him by the hand, led him along as if he were conducting him through manifold dangers. Stefan Arkadyevitch addressed almost all his acquaintances with the familiar thou—old men of threescore, young men of twenty— actors and ministers, merchants and generals, so that they were very many of these familiarly addressed acquaintances from both extremes of the social scale, and they would have been astonished to know that through Oblonsky they had something in common. He thus addressed all with whom he had drunk champagne, and he had drunk champagne with every one, and so when in the presence of his subordinates he met with any of his shameful intimates, as he jestingly called some of his acquaintances, his characteristic tact was sufficient to diminish the disagreeable impressions that they might have. Levin was not one of his shameful intimates, but Oblonsky instinctively felt that Levin might think he would not like to make a display of their intimacy before his subordinates, and so he hastened to take him into his private office. Levin was about the same age as Oblonsky, and their intimacy was not based on champagne alone. Levin was a friend and companion from early boyhood, IN SPITE OF THE DIFFERENCE IN THEIR CHARACTERS AND THEIR tastes, THEY WERE FOND OF EACH OTHER AS FRIENDS ARE WHO HAVE GROWN UP TOGETHER, AND YET, AS OFTEN HAPPENS AMONG MEN WHO HAVE CHOSEN DIFFERENT SPHERES OF ACTIVITY, EACH, WHILE APPROVING THE WORK OF THE OTHER, REALLY DESPISED IT. EACH BELIEVED HIS OWN MODE OF LIFE TO BE THE ONLY RATIONAL WAY OF LIVING, WHILE THAT LED BY HIS FRIEND WAS ONLY AN illusion. AT THE SIGHT OF LEVIN, OBLONSKY COULD NOT REPRESS A SLIGHT IRONICAL SMILE. How many times had he seen him in Moscow just in from the country, where he had been doing something, though Oblonsky did not know exactly what, and scarcely took any interest in it? Levin always came to Moscow anxious, hurried, a trifle annoyed, and vexed because he was annoyed, and generally bringing with him entirely new and unexpected views of things. Stepan Arkadyevitch laughed at this, and yet liked it. In somewhat the same way, Levin despised the city mode of his friend's life, and his official employment, which he considered trifling, and made sport of it. But the difference between them lay in this, that Oblonsky, doing what everyone else was doing, laughed self-confidently and good-naturedly, while Levin, because he was not assured in his own mind, sometimes lost his temper. "'We have been expecting you for some time,' said Stefan Arkadyevich, as he entered his office, and let go his friend's hand, to show that the danger was past.' I am very, very glad to see you, he continued. How goes it? How are you? Oh, when did you come? Levin was silent, and looked at the unknown faces of Oblonsky's two colleagues, and especially at the elegant Grenovitch's hand, with its long, white fingers, and their long, yellow and pointed nails, and his cuffs, with their huge, gleaming cuff-buttons. It was evident that his hands absorbed all of his attention, and allowed him to think of nothing else, Oblonsky instantly noticed this and smiled. Ah, yes, he said. Allow me to make you acquainted with my colleagues: Philip ivanovich Nikitin, Mikhail Stanislavitch Grenevitch. Then, turning to Levin, a landed proprietor, a rising man, a member of the Zemspo, and a gymnast who can lift two hundred pounds with one hand, a raiser of cattle and huntsman, and my friend, Konstantin Dmitrievitch Levin the brother of Sergey Ivanovich Koznyoshev. "'Very happy,' said the little old man. "'I have the honor of knowing your brother, Sergey Ivanovich,' said Grinovich, extending his delicate hand with its long nails. Levin frowned. He coldly shook hands and turned to Oblonsky. Although he had much respect for his half-brother, a writer universally known in Russia, it was nonetheless unpleasant for him to be addressed not as Konstantin Levin, "'but as the brother of the famous Kosnyshev. "'No, I am no longer a worker in the zemstvo "'I have quarrelled with everybody, "'and I don't go to the assemblies,' said he to Oblonsky. "'This is a sudden change,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch with a smile. "'But how? Why?' "'It is a long story, and I will tell it some other time,' replied Levin. "'But he nevertheless went on to say, "'To make a long story short, "'I was convinced that no action amounts to anything.' or can amount to anything, in our provincial assemblies. He spoke as if someone had insulted him. On the one hand, they try to play Parliament, and I am not young enough, and not old enough to amuse myself with toys, and, on the other hand, he hesitated, this serves the district ring to make a little money. There used to be guardianships, judgments, but now they have the Zemstho, not in the way of bribes, but in the way of unearned salaries." He spoke hotly, as if someone present had attacked his views. "'Aha! Here you are, I see, in a new phrase. On the conservative side,' said Stefan Arkadyevich. "'Well, we'll speak about this, by and by.' "'Yes, by and by. But I want to see you particularly,' said Levin, looking with disgust at Grunovitch's hand. Stefan Arkadyevich smiled imperceptibly. "'Didn't you say that you would never again put on European clothes?' he asked, examining his friend's new suit— evidently made by a French tailor. Indeed, I see. Tis a new phase. Levin suddenly grew red, not as grown men grow red, without perceiving it, but as boys blush, conscious that they are ridiculous by reason of their bashfulness, and therefore ashamed and made to turn still redder till the tears almost come. It gave his intelligent, manly face such a strange appearance that Oblonsky turned away and refrained from looking at him. But where can we meet, you see, it is very, very necessary for me to have a talk with you, said Levin. Oblonsky seemed to reflect. How is this? We will go and have luncheon at Gurin's, and we can talk there. At three o'clock I shall be free. No, answered Levin, after a moment's thought. I've got to take a drive. Well, then, let us dine together. Dine? But I have nothing very particular to say. Only two words. To ask a question. Afterward we can gossip. In that case, speak your two words now. We will chat while we are at dinner. These two words are... However, it is nothing very important. His face suddenly assumed a hard expression, due to his efforts in conquering his timidity. What are the Shcherbatskis doing? Just as they used to. Stefan Arkadyevitch, who had long known that Levin was in love with his sister-in-law Kitty, almost perceptibly smiled, and his eyes flashed gaily. You said two words but i cannot answer in two words because excuse me a moment the secretary came in at this juncture with his familiar but respectful bearing and with that modest assumption characteristic of all secretaries that he knew more about business than his superior he brought some papers to oblonsky and under the form of a question he attempted to explain some difficulty without waiting to hear the end of the explanation stepan arkadyevitch laid his hand affectionately on the secretary's arm No. "'Do as I asked you to,' said he, tempering his remark with a smile, and, having briefly given his own explanation of the matter, he pushed away the papers and said, "'Do it so, I beg of you, Zakhar Nikitich.' The secretary went off confused. Levin, during this scene with the secretary, had entirely recovered from his embarrassment, and was standing with both arms resting on a chair. On his face was an ironical expression. "'I don't understand. I don't understand.' said he. "'What don't you understand?' asked Oblonsky, smiling and taking out a cigarette. He was expecting some sort of strange outbreak from Levin. "'I don't understand what you are up to,' said Levin, shrugging his shoulders. "'How can you do this sort of thing seriously?' "'Why not?' "'Why, because it is doing nothing.' "'You think so? We are overwhelmed with work.' "'On paper? Well, yes, you have a special gift for such things,' added Levin. You mean that I... There is something that I lack. Perhaps so, yes. However, I cannot help admiring your high and mighty ways, and rejoicing that I have for a friend a man of such importance. But you did not answer my question, he asked, making a desperate effort to look Oblonsky full in the face. Now that's very good, very good. Go ahead, and you will succeed. Tis well that you have eight thousand acres of land in the district of Karazinsk such muscles, and the complexion of a little girl of twelve. But you will catch up with us all the same. Yes, as to what you asked me, there is no change, but I am sorry that it has been so long since you were in town.' "'Why?' asked Levin in alarm. "'Well, it's nothing,' replied Oblonsky. "'We will talk things over. What has brought you now especially?' "'Ah, we will speak also of that, by and by,' said Levin, again reddening to his very ears. "'Very good.' I understand you, said Stefan Arkadyevitch. You see, I should have taken you home with me to dinner, but my wife is not well today. If you want to see them, you will find them at the zoological gardens from four to five. Kitty is skating. You go there. I will join you later, and we will get dinner somewhere together. Excellent. Vidanya. Look here. You see, I do know you. You will forget all about it or will be suddenly starting back to your home in the country, cried Stefan Arkadyevich with a laugh. No, truly I won't. Levin left the room, and only when he had passed the door realized that he had forgotten to salute Oblonsky's colleagues. That must be a gentleman of great energy, said Grenovitch, after Levin had taken his departure. Yes, Batyushka, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, throwing his head back. He is a likely fellow, eight thousand acres, in the Karzinsky district, He has a future before him, and how vigorous he is. He is not like the rest of us. What have you to complain about, Stefan Arkadyevitch? Well, things are bad. Bad, replied Stefan Arkadyevitch, sighing heavily. End of chapter 5 Part 1, Chapter 6 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy TRANSLATED BY NATHAN Haskell DOYLE. THIS LIBROVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. READ BY MARIANNE SPIEGEL. WHEN OBLONSKY ASKED LEVIN FOR WHAT SPECIAL REASON HE HAD COME, LEVIN GREW RED IN THE FACE, AND HE WAS ANGRY WITH HIMSELF BECAUSE HE GREW RED. BUT HOW COULD HE HAVE REPLIED, I HAVE COME TO ASK THE HAND OF YOUR SISTER-IN-LAW? YET HE HAD COME FOR THAT SINGLE PURPOSE. THE LEVIN AND THE Shabatsky FAMILIES, BELONGING TO THE OLD NOBILITY OF MOSCOW, had always been on intimate and friendly terms during levin's student life the bond had grown stronger he and the young prince scherbatsky the brother of dolly and kitty had taken their preparatory studies and gone through the university together at that time levin was a frequent visitor at the scherbatsky's and was in love with the house strange as it may seem he was in love with the house itself with the family especially with the feminine portion Constantine Levin could not remember his mother, and his only sister was much older than he was, so that for the first time he found in the house of the Sherbatskys that charming and cultivated life so peculiar to the old nobility, and of which the death of his parents had deprived him. All the members of this family, but especially the ladies, seemed to him to be surrounded with a mysterious and poetic halo. Not only did he fail to discover any faults in them— but underneath this poetic and mysterious halo surrounding them he saw the loftiest sentiments and the most ideal perfections. Why these three young ladies were obliged to speak French and English every day? Why they had to take turns in playing for hours at a time on the piano, the sounds of which floated up to their brother's room, where the young students were at work? Why professors of French literature, of music, of drawing, of dancing, had come to give them lessons? Why the three young ladies, at a certain hour, accompanied my Mademoiselle Lignon, drove out in their carriage to the Sverskoya Boulevard, wearing satin shubkas, dolly's very long, Natalie's of half length, and Kitty's very short, showing her shapely ankles and close fitting red stockings, and why when they went to the Sverskoya Boulevard, they had to be accompanied by a lackey with a gilt cockade on his hat. All these things, and many others, were absolutely incomprehensible to him. But he felt that all that took place in this mysterious sphere was beautiful, and he was in love especially with this mystery of accomplishment. While he was a student, he almost fell in love with Dolly, the eldest, but she soon married Oblonsky. Then he began to be in love with the second. It was as if he felt it to be a necessity to love one of the three, only he could not decide which one he liked the best. But Natalie entered society, and soon married the diplomat, Lvov. Kitty was only a child when Levin left the university. Young Shcherbatsky joined the fleet, and was drowned in the Baltic, and Levin's relations with the family became more distant, in spite of his friendship with Oblonsky. At the beginning of the winter, however, after a year's absence in the country, he had met the Sherbotskys again, and learned for the first time which of the three he was destined really to love it would seem as if there could be nothing simpler for a young man of thirty-two of good family possessed of a fair fortune and likely to be regarded as an eligible suitor than to ask the young princess shirbatskaya in marriage and probably levin would have been accepted as an excellent match but he was in love and consequently it seemed to him kitty was a creature so accomplished Her superiority was so above everything earthly, and he himself was such an earthly insignificant being, that he was unwilling to admit, even in thought, that others, or Kitty herself, would regard him as worthy of her. Having spent two months in Moscow, as in a dream, meeting Kitty almost every day in society, which he allowed himself to frequent on account of her, he suddenly concluded that this alliance was impossible, and took his departure for the country. Levin's conclusion that it was impossible was reached by reasoning that in her parents' eyes he was not a suitor sufficiently advantageous or suitable for the beautiful Kitty, and that Kitty herself could not love him. In her parents' eyes he was engaged in no definite line of activity, and at his age had no position in the world, while his comrades were colonels or staff officers, distinguished professors, bank directors, railway officials— presidents of tribunals like Blonsky. But he, and he knew very well how he was regarded by his friends, was only a pomieszczyk, or country proprietor, busy with breeding of cows, hunting woodcock, and building farmhouses. In other words, he was an incapable youth who had accomplished nothing, and who, in the eyes of society, was doing just what men do who have made a failure. Surely, The mysterious, charming Kitty could not love a man so ill-favoured, dull, and good-for-nothing as he felt that he was. Moreover, his former relations with her, consequent upon his friendship with her brother, were those of a grown man with a child, and seemed to him only an additional obstacle to love. It was possible, he thought, for a girl to have a friendship for a good, homely man, such as he considered himself to be but if he is to be loved with a love such as he felt for kitty he must be good-looking and above all a man of distinction he had heard that women often fall in love with ill-favored stupid men but he did not believe that such would be his own experience just as he felt that it would be impossible for him to love a woman who was not beautiful brilliant and poetic but having spent two months in the solitude of the country he became convinced that this was not one of his youthful passions, that the state of his feelings allowed him not a moment of rest, and that he could not live without settling this mighty question, whether she would or would not be his wife, that his despair arose wholly from his imagination, and that he had no absolute certainty that she would refuse him. He had now returned to Moscow with the firm intention of offering himself, and of marrying her if she would accept him. If not, he could not think what would become of him. End of Chapter Six. Part One, Chapter Seven of *Anna Karenina* by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Levin had stopped at the house of his half brother Koznouechev, after making his toilet he went to the library with the intention of telling him why he had come, and asking his advice. But his brother was not alone. He was talking with a famous professor of philosophy who had come up from Kharkov especially to settle a vexed question which had arisen between them on some very important philosophical subject. The professor was waging a bitter war on materialists, and Sergey Kosnyshev followed his argument with interest, and, having read the professor's latest article, he had written him a letter expressing some objections. He blamed the professor for having made two large concessions on the materialists, and the professor had come on purpose to explain what he meant. The conversation turned on the question then fashionable. Is there a dividing line between the physical and the physiological phenomena of man's actions? And where is it to be found? Sergey Ivanovitch welcomed his brother with the same coldly benevolent smile which he bestowed on all, and, after introducing him to the professor, continued the discussion. The professor, a small man with spectacles and narrow forehead, stopped long enough to return Levin's bow, and then continued without noticing him further. Levin sat down to wait till the professor should go, but soon began to feel interested in the discussion. He had read in the reviews articles on this subject, but he had read them with only that general interest Which a man who has studied the natural sciences at the university is likely to take in their development. But he had never appreciated the connection that exists between these learned questions of the origin of man, of reflex action, of biology, of sociology, and those touching the significance of life and death for himself, which had of late been more and more engaging his attention. As he listened to the discussion between his brother and the professor, he noticed that they agreed to a certain kinship between scientific and psychological questions, that several times they almost took up this subject. But each time that they came near what seemed to him the most important question of all, they instantly took pains to avoid it, and sought refuge in the domain of subtle distinctions, explanations, citations, references to authorities, and he found it hard to understand what they were talking about i cannot accept the theory of christ said sergey Ivanovitch, in his characteristically elegant and correct diction and expression and i cannot at all admit that my whole conception of the exterior world is derived from my sensations the most fundamental concept of being does not arise from the senses nor is there any special organ by which this conception is produced Yes. But Wurst and Naust and Pripasov will reply that your consciousness of existence is derived from an accumulation of all sensations, that it is only the result of sensations. Wurst himself says explicitly that where sensation does not exist, there is no consciousness of existence. I will say, on the other hand, began Sergei Ivanovitch, but here Levin noticed that, just as they were about to touch the root of the whole matter... They again steered clear of it, and he determined to put the following question to the professor. Suppose my sensations ceased, if my body were dead, would further existence be possible? The professor, with some vexation and, as it were, intellectual anger at this interruption, looked at the strange questioner as if he took him for a clown rather than a philosopher, and turned his eyes to Sergey Ivanovitch, as if to ask, What does this man mean? But Sergey Ivanovitch, who was not nearly so one-sided and zealous a partisan as the professor, and who had sufficient health of mind both to answer the professor and to see the simple and natural point of view from which the question was asked, smiled and said, We have not yet gained the right to answer that question. Our capacities are not sufficient, continued the professor, taking up the thread of his argument. No, I insist upon this. That if, as pripasov says plainly, Sensations are based upon impressions. We cannot too closely distinguish between the two notions. Eleven did not listen any longer, and waited until the professor took his departure. End of chapter 7 Part 1, Chapter 8 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel when the professor was gone sergey ivanovitch turned to his brother i am very glad to see you shall you stay long how are things on the estate levin knew that his elder brother took little interest in the affairs of the estate and only asked out of courtesy and so in reply he merely spoke of the sale of wheat and the money he had received it had been his intention to speak with his brother about his marriage project and to ask his advice but after the conversation with the professor and in consequence of the involuntarily patronizing tone in which his brother had asked him about their affairs for their real estate had never been divided and levin managed it as a whole he felt that he could not begin to talk about his project of marriage he had an instinctive feeling that his brother would not look upon it as he should wish him to how is it with the zemsvo asked sergey ivanovitch who took a lively interest in these provincial assemblies "'to which he attributed great importance. The fact is, I don't know. "'What? Aren't you a member of the assembly?' "'No, I am no longer a member. "'I have not been going, and don't intend to go any more,' said Levin. "'It's too bad,' murmured Sergey Ivanovitch, frowning. "'Levin, in justification, described what had taken place "'at the meetings of his district assembly. "'But it is forever ever thus,' exclaimed Sergey Ivanovitch, interrupting.' We Russians are always like this. Possibly it is one of our good traits that we are willing to see our faults, but we exaggerate them. We take delight in irony, which comes natural to our language. If such rights as we have, if our provincial institutions were given to any other people in Europe, Germans or English, I tell you, they would derive liberty from them, but we only turn them into sport. But what is to be done? asked Levin, penitently it was my last attempt I tried with all my heart I cannot do it I am helpless not helpless said Sergey Ivanovitch you did not look at the matter in the right light perhaps not replied levin in a melancholy tone do you know brother nikolai has been in town again nikolai was Konstantin levin's own brother and sergey ivanovitch's half-brother standing between them in age he was a ruined man who had wasted the larger part of his fortune, had mingled with the strangest and most disgraceful society, and had quarrelled with his brothers. "'What did you say?' cried Levin, startled. "'How did you know?' Prokofy saw him in the street. "'Here, in Moscow. Where is he?' And Levin stood up, as if with the intention of instantly going to find him. "'I'm sorry that I told you this,' said Sergey Ivanovitch, shaking his head when he saw his younger brother's emotion." I sent out to find where he was staying, and I sent him his letter of credit and Truban, the amount of which I paid. This is what he wrote me in reply, and Sergei Ivanovitch handed his brother a note which he took from a letterpress. Levin read the letter, which was written in the strange hand which he knew so well. I humbly beg to be left in peace. It is all that I ask from my dear brothers, Nikolai Levin. CONSTANTINE without lifting his head, stood motionless before his brother with the letter in his hand. The desire arose in his heart now to forget his unfortunate brother, and the consciousness that it would be wrong. He evidently wants to insult me, continued Sergey Ivanovitch, but it is impossible. I wish with all my soul that I might help him, and yet I know that I shall not succeed. Yes, yes, replied Levin, I understand, and I appreciate your treatment of him, but I am going to him. Go, by all means, if it will give you pleasure, said Sergey Ivanovitch. but I would not advise it. Not on my account, because I fear that he might make a quarrel between us, but, on your own account, I advise you not to go. He can't be helped. However, do as you think best. Perhaps he can't be helped, but I feel especially at this moment—this is quite another reason—I feel that I could not be contented. Well, I don't understand you, said Sergey Ivanovitch. but one thing I do understand, he added, this is a lesson in humility. Since brother Nikolai has become the man he is, I look with greater indulgence on what people call abjectness. Do you know what he has done? Oh, it is terrible, terrible, replied Levin. Having obtained from his brother's servant Nikolai's address, Levin set out to find him, but on second thought changed his mind, and postponed his visit till evening. Before all, he must decide the question that had brought him to Moscow, in order that his mind might be free. He had therefore gone directly to Oblonsky, and having learned where he could find the Sherbotskys, he went where he was told that he would meet Kitty. End of chapter 8 Part One, Chapter Nine of Anna KARININA by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. About four o'clock, Levin dismissed his zvashchik at the entrance of the zoological garden, and with beating heart followed the path that led to the ice mountains and the skating pond, for he knew that he should find Kitty there, having seen the Sherbotsky's carriage at the gate. It was a clear, frosty day. At the entrance of the garden were drawn up rows of carriages and sleighs, hired drivers and policemen stood on the watch. Hosts of fashionable people, with their hats gaily glancing in the bright sunlight, were gathered around the doors and on the paths cleared of snow, among the pretty Russian cottages with their carved balconies. The ancient birch-trees of the garden, their thick branches all laden with snow, seemed clothed in new and solemn cassables. Levin followed the footpath, saying to himself, "'Be calm. "'There is no reason for being agitated. "'What do you desire? "'What ails you? "'Be quiet, you fool!' Thus Levin addressed his heart, and the more he endeavoured to calm his agitation, the more he was overcome by it, till at last he could hardly breathe. An acquaintance spoke to him as he passed, but Levin did not even notice who it was. He drew near the ice mountains, on which creaked the ropes that let down the sledges and drew them up again. The sleds flew with a rush down the slopes, and there was a tumult of happy voices. He went a few steps farther, and before him spread the skating-ground, and among the skaters he soon discovered her. He knew that he was near her from the joy and terror that seized his heart. She was standing at the opposite end of the pond, engaged in conversation with a lady, and nothing, either in her toilet or in her position, was remarkable, but for Levin she stood out from the rest like a rose-bush among nettles. Everything was made radiant by her. She was the smile that lightened the whole place. Do I dare go and meet her on the ice? he asked himself. The place where she was seemed like an unapproachable sanctuary, and for a moment he almost turned to go away again, so full of awe it was. He had to master himself by a supreme effort to think that, as she was surrounded by people of every sort, he had as much right as the rest to go on there and skate. So he went down on the ice, not letting himself look long at her, as if she were the sun. But he saw her as he saw the sun, even though he did not look at her. On this day, and at this hour, the ice formed a common meeting-ground for people of one clique, all of whom were well acquainted. There were also masters in the art of skating, who came to show off their skill. Others were learning to skate by holding on chairs, and making awkward and distressing gestures. There were young ladies, and old men, who skated as a gymnastic exercise. All seemed to Levin to be the happy children of fortune, because they were near Kitty. And all these skaters, with apparently perfect unconcern, glided around her, came close to her, even spoke to her, and with absolute indifference to her enjoyed themselves, making the most of the good skating and splendid weather. Nikolai Sherbotsky, Kitty's cousin, in short jacket and knickerbockers, was seated on a bench with his skates on, and seeing Levin, he cried, "'Ah, the best skater in Russia! Have you been here long? The ice is first-rate. Put on your skates, quick!' "'I have not my skates with me,' replied Levin, "'surprised at this freedom and audacity in her presence, "'and not losing her out of his sight a single instant, "'although he did not look at her. "'He felt that the sun was shining near to him. "'She was at one corner and came gliding toward him, "'putting together her slender feet in high boots "'and evidently feeling a little timid. "'A boy in Russian costume was clumsily trying to get ahead of her, "'desperately waving his arms and bending far forward. "'Kitty herself did not skate with much confidence.' She had taken her hands out of her little muff, suspended by a ribbon, and held them together to grasp the first object that came in her way. Looking at Levin, whom she had recognized, she smiled at him and at her own timidity. As soon as this evolution was finished, she struck out with her elastic little foot and skated up to Sherbotsky, seizing him by the arm, and gave Levin a friendly welcome. She was more charming even than he had imagined her to be. Whenever he thought of her, he could easily recall her whole appearance, but especially the charm of her small blonde head, set so gracefully on her pretty shoulders, and her expression of childlike frankness and goodness. The combination of childlike grace and delicate beauty of form was her special charm, and Levin thoroughly appreciated it. But what struck him like something always new and unexpected was the look in her sweet eyes, her calm and sincere face, and her smile— which transported him to a world of enchantment, where he felt at peace and at rest, as he remembered occasionally feeling in the days of his early childhood. "'Have you been here long?' she asked, giving him her hand. "'Thank you,' she added, as he picked up her handkerchief, which had dropped out of her muff. "'I—no, not long. I came yesterday—' "'That is, today,' answered Levin, so agitated that at first he did not get the drift of her question.' "'I wanted to call upon you,' said he, and when he remembered what his errand was, he grew red, and was more distressed than ever. I did not know that you skated, and so well.' She looked at him closely, as if trying to divine the reason of his embarrassment. "'Your praise is precious. A tradition that you are the best of skaters is still floating about,' said she, brushing off with her little hand, in its black glove, the pine needles that had fallen on her muff. "'Yes,' "'I used to be passionately fond of skating. "'I had the ambition to reach perfection.' "'It seems to me that you do all things passionately,' said she, with a smile. "'I should like to see you skate. "'Put on your skates, and we will skate together.' "'Skate together,' he thought, as he looked at her. "'Is it possible?' "'I will go and put them right on,' he said, "'and he hastened to find a pair of skates. "'It is a long time, sir, since you have been with us,' said the Kotoshik, as he lifted his foot to fit the heel to it. Since your day we have not had anyone who deserved to be called a master in the art. Are they going to suit you?' he asked, as he tightened the strap. "'Excellent! Excellent! Only please make haste,' said Levin, unable to hide the smile of joy which, in spite of him, irradiated his face. "'Yes,' he said to himself, "'this is life. This is happiness. We will skate together,' she said. "'Shall I speak to her now?' but I am afraid to speak, because I am happy, happy only in the hope. Yet when? But it must be. It must. It must. Down with weakness. Levin stood up, took off his cloak, and, after making his way across the rough ice around the little house, he skated out on the glare surface without effort, hastening, shortening, and directing his pace as if by the mere effort of his will. He felt timid about coming up to her, but again her smile assured him, She gave him her hand, and they skated side by side, gradually increasing speed, and the faster they went, the closer she held his hand. "'I shall learn very quickly with you,' she said. "'Somehow I feel confidence in you.' "'I am confident myself when you cling to my hand,' he answered, and immediately he was startled at what he had said, and grew red in the face. In fact, he had scarcely uttered the words when, just as the sun goes under a cloud, her face lost all its kindness.' and Levin became aware of the well-remembered play of her face indicating the force of her thoughts. A slight frown wrinkled her smooth brow. "'Has anything disagreeable happened to you?' "'But I have no right to ask,' he added quickly. "'Why so? No, nothing disagreeable has happened to me,' she said coolly, and immediately continued. "'Have you seen Mamozolignan yet?' "'Not yet. Go and see her. She is so fond of you.' "'What does this mean?' "'I have offended her. Lord, have pity on me,' thought Levin, and skated swiftly towards the old French governess, with little grey curls, who was watching them from a bench. She received him like an old friend, smiling and showing her false teeth. "'Yes, but how we have grown up,' she said, indicating Kitty with her eyes, "'and how demure we are. Tiny Bear has grown large,' continued the old governess, still smiling." and she recalled his jest about the three young ladies whom he had named after the three bears in the English story. Do you remember that you used to call them so? He had entirely forgotten it, but she had laughed at this pleasantry for ten years and still enjoyed it. Now, go, go and skate. Doesn't our Kitty take to it beautifully? When Levin rejoined Kitty, her face was no longer severe. Her eyes had regained their frank and kindly expression, But it seemed to him that her very kindliness had a peculiar premeditated tone of serenity, and he felt troubled. After speaking of the old governess and her eccentricities, she asked him about his own life. Isn't it a bore living in the country in the winter? she asked. No, it is not a bore. I am very busy, he replied, conscious that she was bringing him into the atmosphere of serene friendliness from which he could not escape now any more than he could at the beginning of the winter. "'Shall you stay long?' asked Kitty. "'I do not know,' he answered, without regard to what he was saying. The thought that, if he fell back into that tone of calm friendship, he might return home without reaching any decision, occurred to him, and he resolved to rebel against it. "'Why don't you know?' "'I don't know why. It depends on you,' he said, and instantly he was horrified at his own words. She either did not understand his words, or did not want to understand them, for— Seeming to stumble once or twice, catching her foot, she hurriedly skated away from him, and, having spoken to Mademoiselle Lignon, she went to the little house where her skates were removed by the waiting-women. "'Oh, God, what have I done? "'Oh, Lord God, have pity on me, and come to my aid,' was Levin's secret prayer. And, feeling the need of taking some violent exercise, he began to describe outer and inner curves on the ice." At this instant a young man, the best among the recent skaters, came out of the cafe with his skates on and a cigarette in his mouth. With one spring he slid down, slipping and leaping from step to step, and, without even changing the easy position of his arms, skated down and out upon the ice. Ah, that is a new trick, said to himself, and he climbed up to the top of the bank to try the new trick. Don't kill yourself, it needs practice, shouted Nikolai sherbatsky Levin went up on the platform, got as good a start as he could, and then flew down the steps, preserving his balance with his arms, but at the last step he stumbled, made a violent effort to recover himself, regained his equilibrium, and, with a laugh, glided out upon the ice. "'Charming, glorious fellow,' thought Kitty, at this moment coming out of the little house with Mademoiselle Lignon, and looking at him with a gentle, affectionate smile, as if he were a beloved brother. "'Is it my fault?' have I done anything very bad? People say coquetry. I know that I don't love him, but it is pleasant to be with him, and he is such a splendid fellow. But what made him say that? Seeing Kitty departing with her mother, who had come for her, Levin, flushed with his violent exercise, stopped and pondered. Then he took off his skates and joined the mother and daughter at the gate. "'Very glad to see you,' said the princess. "'We receive on Thursdays, as usual.' Today, then we shall be very glad to see you. She answered coolly. This coolness troubled Kitty, and she could not restrain her desire to temper her mother's chilling manner. She turned her head and said, with a smile, "We shall see you. I hope at this moment, stepan Arkadyevitch, with hat on one side with animated face and bright eyes, entered the garden. But as he came up to his wife's mother, he assumed a melancholy and humiliated expression and replied to the questions which she asked about Dolly's health. When he had finished speaking in a low and broken voice with his mother-in-law, he straightened himself up and took Levin's arm. "'Now, then, shall we go? I have been thinking of you all the time, and I am very glad that you came,' he said, with a significant look into his eyes. "'Come on, come on,' replied the happy Levin, who did not cease to hear the sound of a voice saying, "'We shall see you, I hope,' or to recall the smile that accompanied the words." At the Angela, or at the Hermitage? It's all the same to me. At the Angela, then, said Stefan Arkadyevich, making this choice because he owed more there than at the Hermitage, and it seemed unworthy of him, so to speak, to avoid this restaurant. You have an Izvoshchik? So much the better, for I sent off my carriage. While they were on the way, the friends did not exchange a word. Levin was pondering on the meaning of the change in the expression of Kitty's face, and at one moment persuaded himself that there was hope, and at the next plunged into despair. And he saw clearly that his hope was unreasonable. Nevertheless, he felt that he was another man since he had heard those words, "'We shall see you, I hope,' and seen her smile. Stefan Arkadyevitch was in the meantime making out the menu for their dinner. "'You like turbot, don't you?' were his first words on entering the restaurant. "'What?' exclaimed Levin. "'Turbot.' Yes, I am excessively fond of turbot. End of chapter 9. Part 1, Chapter 10 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Levin could not help noticing, as they entered the restaurant, how Stefan Arkadyevitch's face and whole person seemed to shine with their happiness. Oblonsky took off his overcoat, and, with hat over one ear, marched toward the dining-room, giving, as he went, his orders to the Tartars who in swallow-tails with napkins came hurrying to meet him. Bowing right and left to his acquaintances, who here, as everywhere, seemed delighted to see him, He went directly to the bar and took some vodka and a little fish, and said something comical to the barmaid, a pretty, curly-haired French girl, painted and covered with ribbons and lace, so that she burst into a peal of laughter. But Levin would not drink any vodka, simply because the sight of this French creature, all made up, apparently, of false hair, rice powder, and vinegar de toilette, was revolting to him. He turned away from her quickly, with disgust, as from some horrid place. His whole soul was filled with memories of Kitty, and his eyes shone with triumph and happiness. "'This way, Your Excellency, come this way, and Your Excellency will not be disturbed,' said especially obsequious old Tartar, whose monstrous hips made the tails of his coat stick out behind. "'Will you come this way, Your Excellency?' he said to Levin, as a sign of respect for Stefan Arkadyevitch, whose guest he was." In a twinkling he had spread a fresh cloth on the round table, which, already covered, stood under the bronze chandelier. Then, bringing two velvet chairs, he stood waiting for Stefan Arkadyevich's orders, holding in one hand his napkin, and his order-card in the other. "'If Your Excellency would like to have a private room, one will be at your service in a few moments. Prince Galitzin and a lady. We have just received fresh oysters.' "'Ah, oysters!' Stefan Arkadyevitch reflected. Supposing we change our plan, Levin, said he, with his finger on the bill of fare. His face showed serious hesitation. But are the oysters good? Pay attention. They are from Flensburg, Your Excellency. There are none from Ostend. Flensburg oysters are well enough. But are they fresh? They came yesterday. Very good. What do you say? To begin with oysters, and then make a complete change in our menu— what say you? It's all the same to me. I'd like best of all some shki and kashka, but you can't get them here. Kasha a la Russa, if you would like to order it, said the tartar, bending over toward Levin as a nurse bends toward a child. No, jesting aside, whatever you wish is good. I've been skating and should like something to eat. Don't imagine, he added, as he saw an expression of disappointment on Oblonsky's face, that I do not appreciate your selection." i can eat a good dinner with pleasure it should be more than that you should say that it is one of the pleasures of life said stepan arkadyevitch in this case little brother mine give us two or no that's not enough three dozen oysters vegetable soup suggested the tartar but stepan arkadyevitch did not allow him the pleasure of enumerating the dishes in french and continued vegetable soup you understand then turbot with thick sauce then roast beef, but see to it that it's all right. Yes, some capon, and lastly, some preserve. The tartar, remembering Stepan Arkadyevich's caprice of not calling the dishes by their French names, instead of repeating them after him, waited till he had finished, then gave himself the pleasure of repeating the order according to the bill of fare. Potage printanier, tout beau, sauce boumarché, pour, manger, pour à l'estron, mais de fras. Then instantly, as if moved by a spring, he substituted for the bill of fare the wine-list which he presented to Stepan Arkadyevitch. "'What shall we drink?' "'Whatever you please. Only not much.' "'Champagne,' suggested Levin. "'What? At the very beginning. But you may be right. Why not? Do you like the white seal?' "'Cachet Blanc,' replied the tartar. "'Well, then, give us that brand with the oysters. Then we'll see.' "'It shall be done, sir,' and what table wine shall I bring you? Some Nuits. No, hold on. Give us some classic Chablis. It shall be done, sir. And will you order some of your cheese? Yes, some parmesan. Or do you prefer some other kind? No, it's all the same to me,' replied Levin, who could not keep from smiling. The tartar disappeared on the trot, with his coat-tails flying out behind him. Five minutes later he came with a platter of oysters opened and on the shell, and with a bottle in his hand. Stepan Arkadyevitch crumpled up his well-starched napkin, tucked it into his waistcoat, calmly stretched out his hands, and began to attack the oysters. "'Not bad at all,' he said, as he lifted the succulent oysters from their shells with a silver fork, and swallowed them one by one. "'Not bad at all,' he repeated, looking from Levin to the tartar, his eyes gleaming with satisfaction. Levin also ate his oysters although he would have preferred white bread and cheese. But he could not help admiring Oblonsky. Even the tartar, after uncorking the bottle and pouring the sparkling wine into wide, delicate glass cups, looked at Stefan Arkadyevich with a noticeable smile of satisfaction, while he adjusted his white necktie. "'You are not very fond of oysters, are you?' asked Stefan Arkadyevich, draining his glass. "'Or are you preoccupied? Hey?' He wanted Levin to be in good spirits." but Levin was anxious if he was not downcast. His heart being so full, he found himself out of his element in this restaurant, amid the confusion of guests coming and going, surrounded by the private rooms where men and women were dining together. Everything was repugnant to his feelings, the whole outfit of bronzes and mirrors, the gas and the tartars. He felt that the sentiment that occupied his soul would be defiled. I, yes, I am a little absent-minded, but besides, everything here confuses me. You can't imagine," he said. "How strange all these surroundings seem to a countryman like myself! It's like the fingernails of that gentleman whom I met at your office." "Yes, I noticed that poor grinevich's fingernails interested you greatly," said Stepan Arkadyevitch, laughing. "It is of no use," said Levin. "Suppose you come to me and try the standpoint of a man accustomed to living in the country. We in the country try to have hands suitable to work with." Therefore we cut off our fingernails, and oftentimes we even turn back our sleeves. But here men let their nails grow as long as possible, and so as to be sure of not being able to do any work with their hands, they fasten their sleeves with plates for buttons. Stepan Arkadyevitch smiled gaily. That is a sign that he has no need of manual labor. It is brain work. Perhaps so. Yet it seems strange to me. No less than this that we are doing here. "'In the country we make haste to get through our meals "'so as to be at work again. "'But here you and I are doing our best "'to eat as long as possible, without getting satisfied, "'and so we are eating oysters.' "'Well, there's something in that,' replied Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'But the aim of civilization "'is to translate everything into enjoyment.' "'If that is its aim, I should prefer to be untamed.' "'And you are untamed. "'All you Levins are untamed.' "'Levin sighed. "'He thought of his brother Nikolai.' and felt mortified and saddened, and his face grew dark. But Oblonsky introduced a topic which had the immediate effect of diverging him. "'Very well. Come this evening to our house. I mean to the Sherbatskys,' said he, pushing away the empty oyster-shells, drawing the cheese toward him, and flashing his eyes significantly. "'Yes, I will surely come,' replied Levin, though it did not seem that the princess was very cordial in her invitation. "'What rubbish! It was only her manner.' "'Come, friend, bring us the soup.' "'It was only in her grand dame manner,' replied Stefan Arkadyevitch, "'I shall come there immediately after a rehearsal at the Countess Bonina's. "'How can we help calling you untamed? "'How can you explain your flight from Moscow? "'The Sherbatskys have kept asking me about you, as if I were likely to know. "'I only know one thing, that you are always likely to do things that no one else did.' "'Yes,' replied Levin slowly and with emotion.' "'You are right. I am untamed. Yet it was not that I went, but that I have come back, proves me so. I have come now. Oh, what a lucky fellow you are,' interrupted Oblonsky, looking into Levin's eyes. "'Why? I know fiery horses by their brand, and I know young people who are in love by their eyes,' said Stefan Arkadyevich, dramatically. "'Everything is before you.' "'And yourself? Is everything behind you?' no not altogether but you have the future and I have the present and this present is between the devil and the deep sea what is the matter nothing good but i don't want to talk about myself especially as i cannot explain the circumstances replied stepan arkadyevitch what did you come to moscow for here clear off the things he cried to the tartar can't you imagine asked levin not taking his glowing eyes from oblonsky's face I can imagine, but it is not for me to be the first to speak about it. By this you can tell whether I am right in my conjecture, said Stepan Arkadyevitch, looking at Levin with a sly smile. Well, what have you to tell me? asked Levin, with a trembling voice and feeling all the muscles of his face quiver. How do you look at this? Stepan Arkadyevitch slowly drank his glass of Chablis while he looked steadily at Levin. I, said Stepan Arkadyevitch. There's nothing that I should like so much. Nothing. It is the best thing that could possibly be. But aren't you mistaken? Do you know what we were talking about? murmured Levin, with his eyes fixed on his companion. Do you believe that it is possible? I think it is possible. Why shouldn't it be? No. Do you really think that it is possible? No. Tell me what you really think. If— If she should refuse me, and I am almost certain that— "'Why should you be?' asked Stepan Arkadyevitch? smiling at this emotion. "'It is my intuition. It would be terrible for me, and for her.' "'Oh. In any case, I can't see that it would be very terrible for her. A young lady is always flattered to be asked in marriage.' "'Young girls, in general, perhaps. But not she.' "'Stefan Arkadyevich smiled. He perfectly understood Levin's feeling.' knew that for him all the young girls in the universe were divided into two categories. In the one, all the young girls in existence except her, and these girls had all the faults common to humanity, in other words, ordinary girls, in the other, she alone, without any faults, and placed above the rest of humanity. "'Hold on, take some gravy,' said he, stopping Levin's hand, who was pushing away the gravy. Levin took the gravy in all humility, but he did not give Oblonsky a chance to eat.' No, just wait. Wait, said he. You understand that this is, for me, a question of life and death. I have never spoken to anyone else about it, and I cannot speak to anyone else but you. I know that we are very different from each other, have different tastes, views, everything. But I know also that you love me, and that you understand me, and that's the reason I am so fond of you. Now, for God's sake, be perfectly sincere with me." I will tell you what I think, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, smiling. But I will tell you more. My wife, a most extraordinary woman, and Stefan Arkadyevitch sighed as he remembered his relations with his wife. Then, after a moment's silence, he proceeded. She has a gift of second sight, and sees through people. But that is nothing. She knows what is going to happen, especially when there is a question of marriage. Thus she predicted that Brenton would marry Shakovskaya. No one would believe it. "'and yet it came to pass. "'Well, my wife is on your side.' "'What do you mean?' "'I mean that she likes you. "'She says that Kitty will be your wife.' "'As he heard these words, "'Levin's face suddenly lighted up with a smile "'which was near to tears of emotion. "'She said that,' he cried. "'I always said that your wife was charming. "'But enough. "'Enough of this sort of talk,' he added, "'and rose from the table. "'Good. but sit a little while longer.' "'But Levin could not sit down.' He strode two or three times up and down the little square room, winking his eyes to hide the tears, and then he sat down again at the table. "'Understand me,' he said. "'This is not love. I have been in love. But this is not the same thing. This is more than a sentiment. It is an inward power that controls me. You see, I went away because I had made up my mind that such happiness could not exist, that such good fortune could not be on earth. But after a struggle with myself— I find that I cannot live without this. This question must be decided. But why did you go away? Ah, wait. Ah, so many things to think about, so much to ask. Listen, you cannot imagine what your words have done for me. I am so happy that I have already grown detestable. I am forgetting everything. And yet this very day I heard that my brother Nikolai, you know, he is here, and I had entirely forgotten him. It seems to me that he, too, ought to be happy. But this is like a fit of madness. But one thing seems terrible to me. You are married. You ought to know this feeling. It is terrible that when we are already getting old, with a past behind us, not of love but of wickedness, suddenly come into close relations with a pure and innocent being, this is disgusting, and so I cannot help feeling that I am unworthy. Well, you have not much wickedness to answer for Ugh, oh, said Levin, and yet, as I look with disgust on my life, I tremble and curse and mourn bitterly. Yes. But what can you do? The world is less constituted, said Stefan Arkadyevitch. There is only one consolation, and this is in the prayer that I have always loved. Pardon me not according to my deserts, but according to thy loving kindness. Thus only she can forgive me. End of chapter 10 Part 1, Chapter 11 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel Levin drained his glass, and they were silent. I ought to tell you one thing, though. Do you know Vronsky? asked Stefan Arkadyevitch. No, I don't know him why do you ask?' "'Bring us another bottle,' said Oblonsky to the tartar, who was refilling their glasses and was hovering about them, especially when he was not needed. You must know that Vronsky is one of your rivals.' "'Who is this Vronsky?' asked Levin, and his face, a moment since beaming with the youthful enthusiasm which Oblonsky so much admired, suddenly took on a disagreeable expression of anger. "'Vronsky,' He is one of Count Kirill Ivanovitch Vronsky's sons, and one of the finest examples of the gilded youth of Petersburg. I used to know him at Sver when I was on duty there. He came there for recruiting service. He is immensely rich, handsome, with excellent connections, one of the emperor's aides, and, moreover, a capital good fellow. From what I have seen of him, he is more than a good fellow. He is well educated and bright. He is a rising man." "'Levin scowled and said nothing. "'Well, then, he put in an appearance soon after you left, "'and, as I understand, he fell over ears in love with Kitty. "'You understand that her mother—' "'Excuse me, but I don't understand at all,' interrupted Levin, "'scowling still more fiercely. "'And suddenly he remembered his brother Nikolai "'and how ugly it was in him to forget him. "'Just wait, wait.' "'said Stepan Arkadyevitch, laying his hand on Levin's arm with a smile. "'I have told you all I know, but I repeat that, in my humble opinion, "'the chances in this delicate affair are on your side.' "'Levin leaned back in his chair. His face was pale. "'But I advise you to settle the matter as quickly as possible,' "'suggested Oblonsky, filling up his glass. "'No, thank you. I cannot drink any more,' said Levin, pushing away the glass." I shall be tipsy. Well, how are you feeling? he added, desiring to change the conversation. One word more. In any case, I advise you to settle the question quickly. I advise you to speak immediately, said Stefan Arkadyevitch. Go tomorrow morning, make your proposal in classic style, and God bless you. Why haven't you ever come to hunt with me as you promised to do? Come this spring, said Levin. He now repented with all his heart that he had entered upon this conversation with Stefan Arkadyevich. His deepest feelings were wounded by what he had just learned of all the pretensions of his rival, the young officer from Petersburg, as well as by the advice and insinuations of Stefan Arkadyevich. Stefan Arkadyevich smiled. He perceived what was taking place in Levin's heart. "'I will come some day,' he said. "'Yes, brother. Woman's the spring that moves everything.' My own trouble is bad, very bad, and all on account of women. Give me your advice, he said, taking a cigar, and still holding his glass in his hand. Tell me frankly what you think. But about what? Listen, suppose you were married, that you loved your wife, but had been drawn away by another woman. Excuse me, I really can't imagine any such thing, as it looks to me. It would be as if in coming out from dinner I should steal a loaf of bread from a bakery. Stefan Arkadyevitch's eyes sparkled more than usual. Why not? Bread sometimes smells so good that one cannot resist the temptation. Himmlisch ist, wenn ich besungen meine irdische begier aber doch wenn's nicht gelungen, hat ich auch recht hübsch plaisir. It was heaven when I gained what my heart desired on earth. Yet, if not all were attained, still I had my share of mirth. As he repeated these lines, Oblonsky smiled. Levin could not refrain from smiling also. But a truce to pleasantries, continued Oblonsky. Imagine a woman, a charming, modest, loving creature, poor and alone in the world, who had sacrificed everything for you. Now, imagine, after the thing is done, is it necessary to give her up? We'll allow that it is necessary to break with her, so as not to disturb the peace of the family. But ought we not to pity her, to make provision for her, to soften the blow? Pardon me, but you know that for me all women are divided into two classes. No, that is, there are women, and there are... But I never yet have seen or expect to see beautiful fallen women, beautiful repentant magdalenes, And such women as that painted French creature at the bar, with her false curls, fill me with disgust, and all fallen women are the same. But the women of the New Testament? Ugh, hold your peace. Never would Christ have said those words if he had known to what bad use they would be put. Out of the whole gospel only those words are taken. However, I don't say what I think, but what I feel. You feel a disgust for spiders, and I for these reptiles— You see, you did not have to study spiders, and you know nothing about their natures. So it is with me. It is well for you to say so. It is a very convenient way to do, as the character in Dickens did, and throw all embarrassing questions over his right shoulder with his left hand. But to deny a fact is not to answer it. Now, what is to be done? Tell me, what is to be done? Your wife grows old, and you are full of life. Before you are aware of it, you realize that you do not love your wife, however much you may respect her, and then suddenly you fall in love with someone, and you fall. You fall, said Stefan Arkadyevich, with a melancholy despair. Levin laughed. Yes, you fall, repeated Oblonsky. Then what is to be done? Don't steal fresh bread. Stefan Arkadyevich burst out laughing. Oh, moralist! But please appreciate the situation— Here are two women. One insists only on her rights, and her rights mean your love which you cannot give. The other has sacrificed everything for you and demands nothing. What can one do? How can one proceed? Here is a terrible tragedy. If you wish my judgment concerning this tragedy, I will tell you that I don't believe in this tragedy, and this is why. In my opinion, love—the two loves which Plato describes in his Symposium— you remember, serve as the touchstone for men. Some people understand only one of them. Others understand the other. Those who comprehend only the platonic love have no right to speak of this tragedy now. In this sort of love there can be no tragedy. I thank you humbly for the pleasure, and therein consists the whole drama. But for platonic love there can be no tragedy, because it is bright and pure, and because— At this moment Levin remembered his own shortcomings, and the inward struggles which he had undergone, and he unexpectedly added, "'However, you may be right. It is quite possible. I know nothing, absolutely nothing, about it.'" "'Do you see,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'you are a very perfect man. Your great virtue is your only fault. You are a very perfect character, and you desire that all the factors of life should also be perfect.'" but this cannot be. Here you scorn the service of the state, because, according to your idea, every action should correspond to an exact end, but this cannot be. You require also that the activity of every man should always have an object, that conjugal life and love be one and the same, but this cannot be. All the variety, all the charm, all the beauty of life consists in lights and shades. Levin sighed and did not answer he was absorbed in his own thoughts and did not even listen and suddenly both of them felt that though they were good friends though they had been dining together and drinking wine yet each was thinking only of his own affairs and cared nothing for the affairs of the other oblonsky had more than once had this experience after dining with a friend and he knew what had to be done when instead of coming into closer sympathy THE DISTANCE BETWEEN THEM SEEMED WIDENED. THE ACCOUNT, HE CRIED, AND WENT INTO THE NEXT ROOM, WHERE HE MET AN AIDE WHOM HE KNEW, AND WITH WHOM HE BEGAN TO TALK ABOUT AN ACTRESS AND HER LOVER. THIS CONVERSATION AMUSED AND RESTED OBLONSKY, AFTER HIS CONVERSATION WITH LEVIN, WHO ALWAYS KEPT HIS MIND ON TOO GREAT AN INTELLECTUAL AND MORAL STRAIN. WHEN THE Tartar BROUGHT THE ACCOUNT, ACCOUNTING TO TWENTY-SIX RUBLES AND ODD kopecks, AND SOMETHING MORE FOR HIS FEE, Levin, who at any other time, as a countryman, would have been shocked at the size of the bill, paid the fourteen roubles of his share without noticing, and went to his lodgings to dress for a reception at the Scherbatsky's, where his fate would be decided. End of chapter 11 Part 1 Chapter 12 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. The Princess Kitty Shcherbatskaya was eighteen years old. She was making her first appearance in society this winter, and her triumphs had been more brilliant than her elder sisters, more than even her mother, had expected. Not only were almost all the young men who danced at balls in Moscow in love with Kitty, but, moreover, there were two who— during this first winter were serious aspirants to her hand levin and, soon after his departure, Count Vronsky. Levin's appearance at the beginning of the winter, his frequent calls, and his unconcealed love for Kitty were the first subjects that gave cause for serious conversation between her father and mother in regard to her future and for disputes between the prince and princess. The prince was on Levin's side and declared that he could not desire a better match for Kitty, but the princess with the skill which women have for avoiding a question insisted that kitty was too young that levin did not seem to be serious in his attentions and that she did not show great partiality for him but she did not express what was in the bottom of her heart that she was ambitious for a more brilliant marriage that levin did not appeal to her sympathies and that she did not understand him and when levin took a sudden leave she was glad and said with an air of triumph to her husband you see, I was right. When Vronsky appeared on the scene, she was still more glad, being confirmed in her opinion that Kitty ought to make not merely a good, but a brilliant match. For the princess there was no comparison between Vronsky and Levin as suitors. The mother disliked Levin, and his strange and harsh judgments, his awkwardness in society, which she attributed to his pride and what she called his savage life in the country occupied with his cattle and peasants nor did she like it at all that levin though he was in love with her daughter and had been a frequent visitor at their house for six weeks had appeared like a man who was hesitating watching and questioning whether if he should offer himself the honour which he conferred on them would not be too great and that he did not seem to understand that when a man comes assiduously to a house where there is a marriageable daughter it is proper for him to declare his intentions and then he suddenly departed without any explanation. It is fortunate, the mother thought, that he is so unattractive, and that Kitty has not fallen in love with him. Vronsky satisfied all her requirements. He was very rich, intelligent, of good birth, with a brilliant career at court or in the army before him, and, moreover, he was charming. Nothing better could be desired. Vronsky was devoted to Kitty at the balls, danced with her, and called upon her parents. There could be no doubt that his intentions were serious. But, notwithstanding this, the mother had passed this whole winter full of doubts and perplexities. The princess herself had been married thirty years before, through the matchmaking of an aunt. Her suitor, who was well known by reputation, came, saw the young lady, and was seen by the family the aunt, who served as intermediary, gave and received the report of the impression produced on both sides. The impression was favorable. Then, on a designated day, the expected proposal was made on the parents, and granted. Everything had passed off very easily and simply. At least, so it seemed to the princess. But in the case of her own daughters, she learned by experience how difficult and complicated this apparently simple matter of getting girls married really was, how many fears she had to go through, how many things had to be thought over, how much money had to be lavished, how many collisions with her husband, when the time came for Daria and Natalie to be married. And now that the youngest was in the matrimonial market, she was obliged to suffer from the same anxieties, the same doubts, and even more bitter quarrels with her husband. The old prince, like all fathers— was excessively punctilious about everything concerning the honor and purity of his daughters he was distressingly jealous regarding them especially kitty who was his favorite and at every step he accused his wife of compromising his daughter the princess had become accustomed to these scenes from the days of her elder daughters but now she felt that her husband's strictness had more justification she saw that in these latter days many of the practices of society had undergone a change so that the duties of mothers were becoming more and more difficult. She saw how Kitty's young girlfriends formed a sort of clique, went to races, freely mingled with men, went out driving alone, that many of them no longer made courtesies. And what was more serious, all of them were firmly convinced that the choice of husbands was their affair and not their parents. Marriages aren't made as they used to be, thought and said all these young ladies, even some of the older people. But how are marriages made nowadays? This question the princess could not get anyone to answer. The French custom, where the parents decide the fate of their children, was not accepted, and even bitterly criticized. The English custom, which allows the girls absolute liberty, was also not accepted, and was not possible in Russian society. The Russian custom of employing a matchmaker was regarded as bad form, every one ridiculed it even the princess herself but no one seemed to know what course to take in regard to courtship every one with whom the princess talked said the same thing for goodness sake it is time for us to renounce those exploded notions it is the young folks and not their parents who get married and therefore it is for young folks to make their arrangements in accordance with their own ideas it was well enough for those without daughters to say this But the princess knew well that in this familiar intercourse her daughter might fall in love, and fall in love with someone who would not dream of marrying her, or would not make her a good husband. However earnestly they suggested to the princess that in our time young people ought to settle their own destinies. She found it impossible to agree with them any more than she could believe in the advisability of allowing the four-year-old children of our time to have loaded pistols as their favorite toys." and so the princess felt much more solicitude about Kitty than she had felt about either of her other daughters. She feared now that Vronsky would content himself with playing the gallant. She saw that Kitty was already in love with him, but she consoled herself with the thought that he was a man of honour and would not do so. But, at the same time, she knew how easy it was, with the new freedom allowed in society, to turn a young girl's head and how lightly men as a general thing regarded this. The week before Kitty had told her mother of a conversation which she had held with Vronsky during a mazurka. This conversation had partially relieved the princess's mind, though it did not absolutely satisfy her. Vronsky told Kitty that he and his brother were both so used to letting their mother decide things for them that they never undertook anything of importance without consulting her. "'and now I am looking for my mother's arrival from Petersburg "'as such a great piece of good fortune,' he had said. "'Kitty reported these words without attaching any importance to them, "'but her mother understood them very differently. "'She knew that the old countess was expected from day to day. "'She knew that the old countess would be satisfied with her son's choice, "'and it was strange to her that he had not offered himself, "'as if he feared to offend his mother. "'However she herself was so anxious for this match,' and above all for relief from her anxieties, that she gave a favorable interpretation to these words. Bitterly, as she felt the unhappiness of her oldest daughter, Dolly, who was thinking of leaving her husband, agitation regarding the decision of her youngest daughter's fate completely absorbed her thoughts. Levin's arrival today gave her a new anxiety. She feared lest her daughter, who, as she thought, had at one time felt drawn toward Levin, might, out of excessive delicacy, "'refuse Vronsky, and she feared more than anything else "'that his arrival would complicate everything "'and postpone a long-desired consummation. "'Has he been here long?' asked the princess of her daughter "'when they reached home after their meeting with Levin. "'Since yesterday, maman.' "'I have one thing that I want to say to you,' the princess began, "'and, at the sight of her serious and agitated face, "'Kitty knew what was coming. Mamma, she said, blushing and turning quickly to her, "'Please, please don't speak about this. "'I know. I know all.' "'She wished the same thing that her mother wished, "'but the motives of her mother's desires were repugnant to her. "'I only wish to say that as you have given hope to one— "'Mama, Golubchik, don't speak. "'It is so terrible to speak about this.' "'I will not,' replied her mother, "'seeing the tears in her daughter's eyes. "'Only one word, Muyadusha. "'You have promised to have no secrets from me. Have you any?' "'Never, Mamma, Not one,' replied Kitty, looking at her mother full in the face and blushing. "'But I have nothing to tell now. I... I... even if I wanted to, I don't know what to say and how. I don't know.' The princess smiled to think how momentous appeared to the poor girl what was passing in her heart. End of chapter 12 Part 1, Chapter 13 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel After dinner, and during the first part of the evening, Kitty felt as a young man feels before battle. Her heart beat violently, and she could not concentrate her thoughts, she felt that this evening when they two should meet for the first time would decide her fate she kept seeing them in her imagination sometimes together sometimes separately when she thought of the past pleasure almost tenderness filled her heart at the remembrance of her relations with levin the recollections of her childhood and of his friendship with her departed brother imparted a certain poetic charm to her relations with him his love for her of which she was certain was flattering and agreeable to her, and she found it easy to think about Levin. In her thoughts about Vronsky, there was something that made her uneasy, though he was a man to the highest degree polished and self-possessed. There seemed to be something false, not in him, for he was very simple and good, but in herself, while all was clear and simple in her relations with Levin. But while Vronsky seemed to offer her dazzling promises and a brilliant future, the future with Levin seemed enveloped in mist. When she went upstairs to dress for the evening, and looked into the mirror, she noticed with delight that she was looking her loveliest, and that she was in full possession of all her powers, and what was most important on this occasion, that she felt at ease and entirely self-possessed. At half-past seven, as she was going into the drawing-room, the lackey announced, Konstantin Dmitrik Levin. The princess was still in her room, The prince had not yet come down. It has come at last, thought Kitty, and all the blood rushed to her heart. As she glanced into the mirror, she was startled to see how pale she looked. She knew now, for certainty, that he had come early so as to find her alone and offer himself, and instantly the situation appeared to her for the first time in a new, strange light. Then only she realized that the question did not concern herself alone, nor who would make her happy, nor whom she loved, but that she should have to wound a man whom she liked, and to wound him cruelly. Why? Why was it that such a charming man loved her? Why had he fallen in love with her? But it was too late to mend matters. It was fated to be so. Merciful heaven! Is it possible that I myself must tell him, she thought, I must tell him that I don't love him? That is not true, "'But what can I say? "'That I love another? "'No, that is impossible. "'I will run away. "'I will run away.' "'She had already reached the door "'when she heard his step. "'No, it is not honourable. "'What have I to fear? "'I have done nothing wrong. "'Let come what will. "'I will tell the truth. "'I shall not be ill at ease with him. "'Ah, here he is,' "'she said to herself, "'as she saw his strong but timid countenance, with his brilliant eyes fixed upon her. She looked him full in the face, with an air which seemed to implore his protection, and extended her hand. "'I am rather early. Too early, I am afraid,' said he, casting a glance about the empty room, and when he saw that his hope was fulfilled, and that nothing would prevent him from speaking, his face grew solemn. "'Oh, no,' said Kitty, sitting down near a table. "'But it is exactly what I wanted,' "'so that I might find you alone,' he began, without sitting and without looking at her, lest he should lose his courage. Mamma will be here in a moment. She was very tired today. to-day. she spoke without knowing what her lips said, and did not take her imploring and gentle gaze from his face. Levin gazed at her. She blushed and stopped speaking. "'I told you to-day that I did not know how long I should stay. "'That it depended on you.' Kitty drooped her head lower and lower, not knowing how she should reply to the words that he was going to speak. "'That it depended on you,' he repeated. "'I meant—' "'I—I I meant—' "'I came for this, that—' "'Be my wife,' he murmured, not knowing what he said, but feeling that he had gone through the worst of the difficulty, he stopped and looked at her. She felt almost suffocated. She did not raise her head— She felt a sort of ecstasy. Her heart was full of happiness. Never could she have believed that the declaration of his love would make such a deep impression upon her. But this impression lasted only a moment. She remembered Vronsky. She raised her sincere and liquid eyes to Levin, and, seeing his agitated face, said hastily, "'This cannot be. Forgive me.' How near to him, a moment since, she had been, and how necessary to his life, and now how far away and strangely she suddenly seemed to be. It could not have been otherwise, he said, without looking at her. He bowed and was about to leave the room. End of chapter 13 Part 1 Chapter 14 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. At this instant the princess entered. Apprehension was pictured on her face when she saw their agitated faces, and that they had been alone. Levin bowed low, and did not speak. Kitty was silent, and did not raise her eyes. Thank God, she has refused him, thought the mother, and her face lighted up with a smile with which she always received her Thursday guests she sat down and began to ask levin questions about his life in the country he also sat down hoping to escape unobserved when the guests began to arrive five minutes later one of kitty's friends who had been married the winter before was announced the countess nordstone she was a dried-up sallow nervous sickly woman with brilliant black eyes she was fond of kitty and her affection like that of every married woman for a young girl was expressed by a keen desire to have her married in accordance with her own ideal of conjugal happiness. She wanted to marry her to Vronsky. Levin, whom she had often met at the Sherbatsky's the first of the winter, was always distasteful to her, and her favourite occupation, after she had met him in society, was to make sport of him. "'I am enchanted,' she said, when he looks down on me from his loftiness.' Either he fails to honour me with his learned conversation because I am too silly for him, or else he treats me condescendingly. I like this. Condescending, to me. I am very glad that he cannot endure me. She was right, because the fact was that Levin could not endure her, and he despised her for being proud of what she regarded as a merit, her nervous temperament, her indifference and delicate scorn for all that seemed to her gross and material. The relationship between Levin and the Countess Nordstone was such as is often met with in society where two persons, friends in outward appearance, despise each other to such a degree that they cannot hold a serious conversation, or even clash with each other. The Countess Nordstone instantly addressed herself to Levin. "'Ah, Konstantin Dmitrievich, are you back again in our abominable Babylon?' said she, giving him her little yellow hand and recalling his own words at the beginning of the winter, when he said Moscow was a Babylon. "'Is Babylon converted, or have you been corrupted?' she added with a mocking smile in Kitty's direction. "'I am greatly flattered, Countess, that you remember my words so well,' replied Levin, who, having had time to collect his thoughts, instantly entered into the facetiously hostile tone peculiar to his relations with the Countess Nordstone." "'It seems that they have made a very deep impression on you.' "'Ah, how so? "'But I always make notes. "'Well, how is it, Kitty? "'Have you been skating today? "'And she began to talk with her young friend. "'Awkward as it was in him to take his departure now, Levin preferred to commit this breach of etiquette "'rather than remain through the evening "'and to see Kitty, who occasionally looked at him, "'though she avoided his eyes. "'He attempted to get up, "'but the princess, noticing that he had nothing to say, addressed him directly. "'Do you intend to remain long in Moscow? "'You are justice of the peace in your district, are you not? "'And I suppose that will prevent you from making a long stay.' "'No, princess, I have resigned that office,' he said. "'I have come to stay several days.' "'Something has happened to him,' thought the Countess Nordstone, "'as she saw Levin's stern and serious face.' because he does not launch out into his usual tirades, but I'll soon draw him out. Nothing amuses me more than to make him ridiculous before Kitty, and I'll do it. Konstantin Dmitrik, she said to him, explain to me, please, what this means, for you know all about it. At our estate in Kaluga, all the Musics and their wives have drunk up everything they had, and don't pay what they owe us. "'You are always praising the musics. "'What does this mean?' "'At this moment another lady came in, and Levin arose. "'Excuse me, Countess, I know nothing at all about it, "'and I cannot answer your question,' said he, "'looking at an officer who entered at the same time with the lady. "'That must be Vronsky,' he thought, "'and to confirm his surmise he glanced at Kitty. "'She had already had time to perceive Vronsky, "'and she was looking at Levin.' When he saw the young girl's involuntarily brightening eyes, Levin saw that she loved that man. He saw it as clearly as if she herself had confessed it to him. But what sort of man was he? Now, whether it was wise or foolish, Levin could not help remaining. He must find out for himself what sort of man it was that she loved. There are men who, on meeting a fortunate rival, are immediately disposed to deny that there is any good in him, see only evil in him. Others, on the contrary, endeavor to discover nothing but the merits that have won him his success, and with sore hearts to attribute to him nothing but good. Eleven belonged to the latter class. It was not hard for him to discover what amiable and attractive qualities Vronsky possessed. They were apparent at a glance. He was dark, of medium stature, and well proportioned. His face was handsome— calm and friendly. Everything about his person, from his black, short-cut hair and his freshly shaven chin to his new, well-fitting uniform, was simple and perfectly elegant. Vronsky allowed the lady to pass before him. Then he approached the princess and finally came to Kitty. As he drew near her, his beautiful eyes shone with deeper tenderness, and with a smile expressive of joy mixed with triumph. So it seemed to Levin he bowed respectfully and with dignity and offered her his small wide hand after greeting them all and speaking a few words he sat down without having seen levin who never once took his eyes from him allow me to make you acquainted said the princess turning to levin konstantin dmitrievich levin count alexey kirillovitch vronsky vronsky arose and with a friendly look into Levin's eyes, shook hands with him. It seems, said he, with his frank and pleasant smile, that I was to have had the honour of dining with you this winter, but you went off unexpectedly to the country. Konstantin Dmitrich despises and shuns the city, and us its denizens, said the Countess Nordstone. It must be that my words impress you deeply, since you remember them so well, said Levin and perceiving that he had already made this remark, he grew red in the face. Vronsky looked at Levin and the Countess, and smiled. So, then, you always live in the country? he asked. I should think it would be tiresome in winter. Not if one has enough to do. Besides, one does not get tired of himself, said Levin sharply. I like the country, said Vronsky, noticing Levin's tone and appearing not to notice it. "'But, Count, I hope you would not consent to live always in the country,' said the Countess Nordstone. "'I don't know. I never made a long stay, but I once felt a strange sensation,' he added. "'Never have I so eagerly longed for the country, the real Russian country, with its vast shoes and its musics, as during the winter that I spent at Nice with my mother. Nice, you know, is melancholy anyway. And Naples, Sorrento.' are pleasant only for a short time. There it is that one remembers Russia most tenderly, and especially the country. They are almost as—' He spoke, now addressing Kitty, now Levin, turning his calm and friendly eyes from one to the other, and he evidently said whatever came into his head. Noticing that the Countess Nordstone wanted to say something, he stopped, without finishing his phrase, and began to listen to her attentively. The conversation did not languish a single instant, so that the old princess, who always had in reserve two heavy guns, in case there needed to be a change in the conversation, namely classic and scientific education, and the general compulsory conscription, had no need to bring them out, and the Countess Nordstone did not even have a chance to rally Levin. Levin wanted to join in the general conversation, but was unable. He kept saying to himself, now i'll go and still he waited as if he expected something the conversation turned on table-tipping and spirits and the countess nordstone who was a believer in spiritism began to relate the marvels that she had seen ah countess in the name of heaven take me to see them i never yet saw anything extraordinary anxious as i have always been said vronsky smiling Good next saturday replied the countess but you constantine dmitrich do you believe in it she asked of levin why do you ask me you know perfectly well what i shall say because i want to hear your opinion my opinion is simply this replied levin that table tipping proves that so-called cultivated society is scarcely more advanced than the musics they believe in the evil eye in casting lots in sorceries, while we. That means that you don't believe in it? I cannot believe in it, Countess. But if I myself have seen these things— The peasant women also say that they have seen the Domovoi. Then you think that I do not tell the truth? And she broke into an unpleasant laugh. But no, Masha, Constantine Dimitry simply says that he cannot believe in spiritism— said kitty blushing for levin and levin understood her and growing still more irritated was about to reply but vronsky instantly came to the rescue and with a gentle smile brought back the conversation which threatened to go beyond the bounds of politeness do you not admit at all the possibility of it being true he asked why not we willingly admit the existence of electricity which we do not understand Why should there not exist a new force, as yet unknown, which, when electricity was discovered, interrupted Levin eagerly, only its phenomena had been seen, and it was not known what produced them, or whence they arose, and centuries passed before people dreamed of making application of it. Spiritualists, on the other hand, have begun by making tables right, and by summoning spirits to them, and it is only afterward they begin to say it is an unknown force vronsky listened attentively as he always listened and was evidently interested in levin's words yes but the spiritualists say we do not yet know what this force is but it is a force and acts under certain conditions let the scientists find out what it is i don't see why it may not be a new force if it because interrupted levin again every time you rub resin with wool you produce a certain and invariable electrical phenomenon where spiritualism brings no such invariable result and so it cannot be a natural phenomenon vronsky evidently perceiving that the conversation was growing too serious for a reception made no reply and in order to make a diversion smiled gaily and addressing the ladies said countess let us make an experiment now "'but Levin wanted to finish saying what was in his mind. "'I think,' he continued, "'that the attempts made by spiritual mediums "'to explain their miracles by a new force "'is most abortive. "'They claim that it is a supernatural force, "'and yet they want to submit it to a material test.' "'All were waiting for him to come to an end, "'and he felt it. "'And I think that you would be a capital medium,' "'said the Countess Nordstone.' There is something so enthusiastic about you. Levin opened his mouth to speak, but he said nothing and turned red. Come, let us give the tables a trial, said Vronsky. With your permission, Princess. And Vronsky rose and looked for a small table. Kitty was standing by a table and her eyes met Levin's. Her whole soul pitied him because she felt that she was the cause of his pain. Her look said, "'Forgive me, if you can. I am so happy.' "'And his look replied, "'I hate the whole world, you and myself.' "'And he took up his hat. "'But it was not his fate to go. "'The guests were just taking their places around the table, "'and he was on the point of starting, "'when the old prince entered and, "'after greeting the ladies, went straight to Levin. "'Ah!' he cried joyfully, "'what a stranger! I did not know that you were here.' very glad to see you in speaking to levin the prince sometimes used the familiar tui thou and sometimes the formal we you he took him by the arm and while conversing with him gave no notice to vronsky who stood waiting patiently for the prince to speak to him kitty felt that her father's friendliness must be hard for levin after what had happened she also noticed how coldly her father at last acknowledged vronsky's bow and how Vronsky looked at her father, with good-humoured perplexity, striving in vain to make out what this icy reception meant, and she blushed. "'Prince, let us have Konstantin Dmitrich,' said the Countess Nordstone. "'We want to try an experiment.' "'What sort of an experiment?' "'Table-tipping.' "'Well, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, but, in my opinion, grace-hoops would be a better game,' said the prince, looking at Vronsky, whom he took to be the originator of this sport. At least there's some sense in grace hoops. Vronsky, astonished, turned his steady eyes upon the old prince, and, slightly smiling, began to talk with the Countess Nordstone about the arrangements for a great ball to be given the following week. I hope that you will be there, said he, turning to Kitty. As soon as the old prince turned from him, Levin made his escape. And the last impression which he bore away from this reception was Kitty's happy, smiling face, answering Vronsky's question in regard to the ball. End of Chapter Fourteen. Part One, Chapter Fifteen of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. After the guests had gone, Kitty told her mother of her conversation with Levin, and, in spite of all the pain that she had caused him, the thought that he had asked her to marry him flattered her. She had no doubt that she had acted properly, but it was long before she could go to sleep. One memory constantly arose in her mind. It was Levin's face as, with contracted brow, he stood listening to her father, looking at her and vronsky with his gloomy melancholy kind eyes she felt so sorry for him that she could not keep back the tears but as she thought of him who had replaced levin in her regards she saw vividly his handsome strong and manly face his aristocratic self-possession his universal kindness to everyone and she recalled his love for her and how she loved him and joy came back to her heart. She laid her head on the pillow and smiled with happiness. It is too bad, too bad, but what can I do? It is not my fault, she said to herself, although an inward voice whispered the contrary. She did not know whether she ought to reproach herself for having been attracted to Levin or for having refused him, but her happiness was not alloyed with doubts. ''Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, have mercy upon me,'' she repeated until she went to sleep. Meantime, downstairs, in the prince's little library, there was going on one of those scenes which frequently occurred between the parents in regard to their favorite daughter. ''What?'' ''This is what?'' cried the prince, waving his arms, and immediately wrapping around him his squirrel-skin, kalat, You have neither pride nor dignity. You are ruining your daughter with this low and ridiculous manner of husband-hunting. But in the name of heaven, prince, what have I done? said the princess, almost ready to cry. She had come, as usual, to say good-night to her husband, feeling very happy and satisfied over her conversation with her daughter, and though she had not ventured to breathe a word of Levin's proposal and Kitty's rejection of him, she allowed herself to hint to her husband that she thought the affair with Vronsky was settled, that it would be decided as soon as the countess should arrive. At these words the prince had fallen into a passion, and had addressed her with unpleasant reproaches. "'What have you done? This is what. In the first place you have decoyed a husband for her.' And all Moscow will say so, and with justice. If you want to give receptions, give them by all means, but invite everyone, and not suitors of your own choice. Invite all these mashers, thus the prince called the young men of Moscow. Have somebody to play, and let them dance, and not like tonight, inviting only suitors. It seems to me shameful, shameful, the way you've pushed. You have turned the girl's head. Levin is a thousand times the better man, and as to this Petersburg dandy, he's one of those turned out by machinery. They are all on one pattern, and all trash. My daughter has no need of going out of her way, even for a prince of the blood. But what have I done? Why this, cried the prince angrily. I know well enough that, if I listen to you, interrupted the princess, We shall never see our daughter married, and, in that case, we might just as well go into the country. We'd better go. Now, wait. Have I made any advances? No, I have not. But a young man, and a very handsome young man, is in love with her. And she, it seems... Yes, so it seems to you. But suppose she should be in love with him, and he have as much intention of getting married as I myself. Ugh! haven't i eyes to see ah spiritism ah nice ha the ball here the prince attempting to imitate his wife made a curtsey at every word we shall be very proud when we have made our katyonka unhappy and when she really takes it into her head but what makes you think so i don't think so i know so and that's why we have eyes and you mothers haven't I see a man who has serious intentions, Levin, and I see a fine bird, like this good-for-nothing, who is merely amusing himself. Well, now you have taken it into your head. You will remember what I have said, but too late, as you did with Dashenka. Very well, very well. We will not say anything more about it, said the princess, who was cut short by the remembrance of Dolly's unhappiness. So much the better, and good night. The husband and wife, as they separated, kissed each other good night, making the sign of the cross, but with a consciousness that each remained unchanged in opinion. The princess had at first been firmly convinced that Kitty's fate was decided by the events of the evening, and that there could be no doubt of Vronsky's designs, but her husband's words troubled her. On her return to her room. As she thought in terror of the unknown future, she did just as Kitty had done, and prayed from the bottom of her heart, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. End of chapter 15 Part 1, chapter 16 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Vronsky had never known anything of family life. His mother, in her youth, had been a very brilliant society woman who, in her husband's lifetime and after his death, had engaged in many love affairs that had made talk. Vronsky scarcely remembered his father, and he had been educated in the school of pages. Graduating very young, and with brilliancy as an officer, he immediately began to follow the course of wealthy military men of Petersburg. Though he occasionally went into general society, all his love affairs were with a different class. At Moscow, after the luxurious, dissipated life of Petersburg, he, for the first time, felt the charm of familiar intercourse with a lovely, innocent society girl, who was evidently in love with him. It never occurred to him that there might be anything wrong in his relations with Kitty. At balls he preferred to dance with her. He called on her, talked with her as people generally talk in society. All sorts of trifles, but trifles to which he involuntarily attributed a different meaning when spoken to her. Although he never said anything to her which he would not have said in the hearing of others, he was conscious that she kept growing more and more dependent on him, and, the more he felt this consciousness, the pleasanter it was to him, and his feeling toward her grew warmer and warmer. He did not know that his behavior toward Kitty had a definite name, and this way of leading on young girls without any intention of marriage is one of the most dishonorable tricks practiced among the members of the brilliant circles of society in which he moved. He simply imagined that he had discovered a new pleasure, and he enjoyed his discovery. Could he have heard the conversation between Kitty's parents that evening? Could he have taken the family point of view, and realized that Kitty would be made unhappy if he did not propose to her? He would have been amazed, and would not have believed it. He would not have believed that what gave him and her such a great delight could be wrong, still less, that it brought any obligation to marry. He had never considered the possibility of his getting married not only was family life distasteful to him but from his view as a bachelor the family and especially the husband belonged to a strange hostile and worst of all a ridiculous world but though vronsky had not the slightest suspicion of the conversation of which he had been the subject he left the sherbatskys with the feeling that the mysterious bond that attached him to kitty was closer than ever so close indeed that he felt he must do something. But what he ought to do, or could do, he could not imagine. How charming, he thought, as he went to his rooms, feeling, as he always felt when he left the Sherbatskys, a deep impression of purity and freshness, arising partly from the fact that he had not smoked all the evening, and a new sensation of tenderness caused by her love for him. How charming that, without either of us saying anything— we understand each other so perfectly through this mute language of glances and tones, so that today more than ever, she told me that she loves me, and how lovely, natural, and, above all, confidential she was. I feel that I myself am better, purer. I feel that I have a heart, and that there is something good in me. Those gentle, lovely eyes, when she said, well, what did she say? Nothing much, but it was pleasant for me, and pleasant for her. And he reflected how he could best finish up the evening. He passed in review the places where he might go. The club, a hand of bezecu, and some champagne with Ignatov? No, not there. The Chateau de Fleurs, to find a Blonsky, Songs, and the Konkan. No, it's a bore and this is just why I like the Sherbotskys, because I feel better for having been there. I'll go home. He went to his room at dussecks, ordered supper, and then, having undressed, he had scarcely touched his head to the pillow before he was sound asleep. End of chapter 16 Part 1 Chapter 17 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This Slip-a-Vox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. The next morning, about eleven o'clock, Vronsky went to the station to meet his mother on the Petersburg train, and the first person he saw on the grand staircase was Oblonsky, who was expecting his sister on the same train. Ah, Your Excellency," cried Oblonsky, "are you expecting someone?" "'My Matushka,' replied Vronsky, with the smile with which people always met Oblonsky. and, after shaking hands, they mounted the staircase side by side. She was to come from Petersburg to-day. "'I waited for you till two o'clock this morning. Where did you go after leaving the Sherbatskys? "'Home,' replied Vronsky, to tell the truth. After such a pleasant evening at the Sherbotskys, I did not feel like going anywhere.' I know fiery horses by their brand, and young people who are in love by their eyes,' said Stepan Arkadyevitch, in the same dramatic tone in which he had spoken to Levin the afternoon before. Vronsky smiled, as much as to say that he did not deny it, but he hastened to change the conversation. "'And whom have you to meet?' he asked. I a very pretty woman,' said Oblonsky. "'Ah, indeed.' Onisekwa PENSE, my sister Anna. Ah, Madame Karenina! Exclaimed Vronsky. Do you know her then? It seems to me that I do, or no? The truth is, I don't think I do. Replied Vronsky, somewhat confused. The name Karenin dimly brought to his mind a tiresome and conceited person. But Alexey Alexandrovitch, my celebrated brother-in-law, you must know him everyone knows him. That is, I know him by reputation, and by sight. I know that he is talented, learned, and rather adorable. But you know that he is not—not in my line,' said Vronsky in English. "'Yes. He is a very remarkable man. Somewhat conservative. But a splendid man,' replied Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'A splendid man.' "'Well,' "'So much the better for him,' said Vronsky, smiling. "'Ah, here you are,' he cried, seeing his mother's old lackey standing at the door. "'Come this way,' he added. Vronsky, besides experiencing the pleasure that everybody felt in seeing Stefan Arkadyevitch, had felt especially drawn to him because, in a certain way, it brought him closer to Kitty. "'Well, now, what do you say to giving the diva a supper Sunday?' said he, with a smile, taking him by the arm. "'Certainly. I will pay my share. "'Oh, tell me, did you meet my friend Levin last evening?' asked Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'Yes, but he went away very early.' "'He is a glorious young fellow,' said Oblonsky. "'Isn't he?' "'I don't know why it is,' replied Vronsky. "'But all the Muscovites, present company excepted,' he added jestingly, "'have something sharp about them. "'They all seem to be high-strung.' fiery-tempered, as if they all wanted to make you understand. "'That is true enough. There is,' replied Stefan Arkadyevitch, smiling pleasantly. "'Is the train on time?' asked Vronsky, of an employee. "'It will be here directly,' replied the employee. The increasing bustle in the station, the coming and going of porters, the appearance of policemen and officials, the arrival of expectant friends, all indicated the approach of the train." through the frosty steam workmen could be seen passing in their soft blouses and felt boots amid the network of rails the whistle of the coming engine was heard and the approach of something heavy no continued stepan Arkadyevitch, who was anxious to inform vronsky of levin's intentions in regard to kitty no you are really unjust to my friend levin he is a very nervous man and then sometimes he can be disagreeable but on the other hand he can be very charming he is such an upright genuine nature true gold last evening there were special reasons continued stepan arkadyevitch with a significant smile and entirely forgetting his genuine sympathy which the evening before he had felt for his old friend and now experiencing the same sympathy for vronsky yes there was a reason why he should have been either very happy or unhappy Vronsky stopped short, and asked point-blank, "'What was it? Do you mean that he proposed yesterday evening to your sister-in-law?' "'Possibly,' replied Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'Something like that seemed probable last evening. Yes, if he went off so early, and was in such bad spirits, then it is so. He has been in love with her for so long, and I am very sorry for him.' "'Ah, indeed.' "'I thought that she might, however, have aspirations for a better match,' said Vronsky, and, filling out his chest, he began to walk up and down again. Then he added, "'However, I don't know him. Yes, this promises to be a painful situation. That is why the majority of men prefer to consort with their Claras. There, lack of success shows that you haven't money enough. But here, you stand on your own merits. Uh, But here's the train. In fact, the engine was now whistling some distance away. But in a few minutes the platform shook, and the locomotive, puffing out the steam condensed by the cold air, came rolling into the station, with the lever of the central wheel slowly and rhythmically rising and falling, and the engineer well muffled and covered with frost. Next the tender came the baggage-car, still more violently shaking the platform. A dog in its cage was yelping piteously, Finally appeared the passenger-cars, which jolted together as the train came to a stop. The vigorous-looking conductor sprang down from the car and whistled, and behind him came the more impatient of the travellers, an officer of the guard, straight and imperious, a nimble little merchant, gaily smiling, with his gripsack, and a music with his bundle over his shoulder. Vronsky, standing near Oblonsky, watched the cars and the passengers, and completely forgot his mother. What he had just heard about Kitty caused him emotion and joy. He involuntarily straightened himself, his eyes glistened, and he felt that he had won a victory. "'The Countess Bronskaya is in that compartment,' said the vigorous conductor, approaching him. These words awoke him from his reverie, and brought his thoughts back to his mother and their approaching meeting.' In his soul he did not respect his mother, and, without ever having confessed as much to himself, he did not love her. But his education, and the usages of society in which he lived, did not allow him to admit that there could not be in his relations with her the slightest want of consideration. But the more he exaggerated the bare outward forms, the less he felt in his heart that he respected or loved her. End of Chapter Seventeen. Part One, Chapter Eighteen of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Vronsky followed the conductor, and as he was about to enter the railway carriage, he stood aside to allow a lady to pass him with the instant intuition of a man of the world he saw by a single glance at this lady's exterior that she belonged to the very best society begging her pardon he was about to enter the door but involuntarily he turned to give another look at the lady not because she was very beautiful not because of that elegance and that unassuming grace which were expressed in her whole person but because the expression of her lovely face as she passed seemed to him so gentle and sweet. Just as he looked back at her, she also turned her head. Her brilliant grey eyes, looking almost black under the long lashes, rested on his face with a friendly, attentive look, as if she recognized him, and instantly she turned to seek someone in the throng. Quick as this glance was, Vronsky had time to perceive the dignified vivacity which played in her face and fluttered between her shining eyes and the scarcely perceptible smile parting her rosy lips. There seemed to be in her whole person such a superfluity of life that, in spite of her will, it expressed itself now in the lightning of her eyes, now in her smile. She demurely veiled the light in her eyes, but it shone against her will in her scarcely perceptible smile. Vronsky went into the carriage. His mother— A dried-up old lady with black eyes and little curls screwed up her face as she looked at him with a slight smile on her thin lips. Getting up from her chair, and handing her bag to her maid, she extended her thin little hand to her son, and, pushing his head from her, kissed him on the brow. "'You received my telegram. You are well. Thank the Lord.' "'Did you have a comfortable journey?' said the son, sitting down near her, and yet involuntarily listening to a woman's voice just outside the door. He knew that it was the voice of the lady whom he had met. "'However, I don't agree with you,' said the lady's voice. "'It is the Petersburg way of looking at it, madame.' "'Not at all, but simply a woman's,' was her reply. "'Well, allow me to kiss your hand.' "'Good-bye, Ivan Petrovitch. "'Now look and see if my brother is here, and send him to me,' said the lady, at the very door,' and re-entering the compartment. "'Have you found your brother?' asked the Countess Vronskaya, addressing the lady. Vronsky now knew it was Karin's wife. "'Your brother is here,' he said, rising. "'Excuse me, I did not recognize you. But our acquaintance was so short,' he added with a bow, "'that you naturally did not remember me either.' "'Oh, yes, I did,' she said. "'I should have known you because your Matushka and I have been talking about you all the way.' and at last she permitted the animation which had been striving to break forth to express itself in a smile but my brother has not come yet go and call him Aloisha, said the old countess vronsky went out on the platform and called oblonsky here but karenin's wife did not wait for her brother as soon as she saw him she ran lightly out of the carriage went straight to him and with a gesture which struck vronsky by its grace and energy threw her left arm around his neck, and kissed him affectionately. Vronsky could not keep his eyes from her face, and smiled, without knowing why. But, remembering that his mother was waiting for him, he went back into the carriage. "'Very charming, isn't she?' said the countess, referring to Madame Karenina. "'Her husband put her in my charge, and I was very glad. She and I talked together all the way. "'Well, and you?' They say you are desperately in love. So much the better, my dear, so much the better. I don't know what you allude to, Maman, replied the son coldly. Come, Maman, let us go. At this moment Madame Corinina came back to take leave of the Countess. Well, Countess, you have found your son, and I my brother, she said gaily, and I have exhausted my whole fund of stories. I shouldn't have had anything more to talk about. Ah! Not so, said the countess, taking her hand. I should not object to travel round the world with you. You are one of those agreeable women with whom either speech or silence is pleasant. As to your son, I beg of you, don't think about him. We must have separations in this world. Madame Karenina stood motionless, holding herself very erect, and her eyes smiled. Anna Arkadyevna has a little boy about eight years old, said the countess, in explanation to her son. She has never been separated from him before, and it troubles her to leave him. Yes, we have talked about our children all the time. The countess of her son, I of mine, said Madame Karenina, turning to Vronsky, and again the smile lighted up her face, the caressing smile which beamed upon him. That must have been very tiresome to you said he, instantly catching on the rebound the ball of coquetry which she had tossed him. But she evidently did not care to continue her conversation in the same tone, but turned to the old countess. Thank you very much. I don't see where the time has gone. Good-bye, countess. Farewell, my dear, replied the countess. Let me kiss your pretty little face. I tell you frankly, as it is permitted an old lady, that I am in love with you. Hackneyed, as this expression was, Madame Karenina evidently believed thoroughly in its sincerity, and was pleased with it. She blushed, bowed slightly, and bent her face down to the old countess's lips. Then, straightening herself up, she gave her hand to Vronsky with a smile that seemed to belong as much to her eyes as to her lips. He pressed her little hand, and, as if it were something unusual, was delighted with the energetic firmness with which she frankly and fearlessly shook his hand. Madame Carinina went out with light and rapid step, carrying her rather plump person with remarkable elasticity. "'Very charming,' said the old lady again. Her son was of the same opinion, and again his eyes followed her graceful figure till she was out of sight, and a smile rested on his face. Through the window he saw her join her brother, take his arm, and engage him in lively conversation.' evidently some subject with which vronsky had no connection and this seemed to him annoying well are you enjoying perfectly good health maman he asked turning to his mother very well indeed splendid alexandra has been charming and marie has been very good she is very interesting and again she began to speak of what was especially interesting to her heart the baptism of her grandson for which she had come to moscow AND THE SPECIAL FAVOR SHOWN HER ELDEST BY THE EMPEROR. AND HERE IS LEVONTI, SAID Vronsky, LOOKING OUT OF THE WINDOW. NOW LET US GO, IF YOU ARE READY. THE OLD STEWARD, WHO HAD COME WITH THE COUNTESS, NOW APPEARED AT THE DOOR TO REPORT THAT EVERYTHING WAS READY, AND SHE AROSE TO GO. COME, THERE ARE ONLY A FEW PEOPLE ABOUT NOW, SAID Vronsky. THE MAID TOOK THE BAG AND THE LITTLE DOG. THE STEWARD AND A PORTER CARRIED THE OTHER LUGGAGE. Vronsky offered his mother his arm, but, just as they stepped down from the carriage, a number of men with frightened faces ran hastily by them. The station-master followed in his curiously colored furzuka, or uniform cap. Evidently something unusual had happened. The people who had left the train were coming back again. "'What is it? What is it? Where? He was thrown down. He was crushed to death.' were the exclamations heard among those hurrying by. Stefan Arkadyevitch, with his sister on his arm, had returned with the others, and were standing with frightened faces near the train to avoid the crush. The ladies went back into the carriage, and Vronsky, with Stefan Arkadyevitch went with the crowd to learn the particulars of the accident. A train-hand, either from drunkenness, or because he was too closely muffled against the intense cold, had not heard the noise of a train that was backing out, and had been crushed. The ladies had already learned about the accident from the steward before Vronsky and Oblonsky came back. Both of them had seen the disfigured body. Oblonsky was deeply moved. He frowned and seemed ready to shed tears. Oh, how terrible! Ah, oh, Anna, if you had only seen it! Oh, how horrible! he repeated. Vronsky said nothing. His handsome face was serious but perfectly calm. "'Oh, if you had only seen it, Countess,' continued Stefan Arkadyevitch, "'and his wife is there. It was terrible to see her. She threw herself on his body. They say he was the only support of a large family. How terrible!' "'Could anything be done for her?' said Madame Karenina in an agitated whisper. Vronsky looked at her, and immediately left the carriage. "'I will be right back, Maman,' He said, turning round at the door. When he came back, at the end of a few minutes, Stefan Arkadyevitch was talking with the countess about a new singer, and she was impatiently watching the door for her son. Now let us go, said Vronsky. They all went out together, Vronsky walking ahead with his mother, Madame Karenina and her brother side by side. At the door the station-master overtook them, and said to Vronsky, You have given my assistant two hundred roubles, Will you kindly indicate the disposition we shall make of them? For his widow, said Vronsky, shrugging his shoulders. I don't see why you should have asked me. Did you give that? asked Oblonsky, and pressing his sister's arm, he said, Very kind, very kind. Glorious fellow, isn't he? My best wishes, Countess. He and his sister delayed, looking for her maid. When they left the station, the Vronsky's carriage had already gone, people on all sides were talking about what had happened what a horrible way of dying said a gentleman passing near them they say he was cut in two it seems to me on the contrary replied another that it was a very easy way and death was instantaneous weren't there any precautions taken asked a third madame karenina sat down in the carriage and stepan arkadyevitch noticed with astonishment that her lips trembled and that she could hardly keep back the tears "'What is the matter, Anna?' he asked, when they had gone a little distance. "'It is an evil omen,' she answered. "'What nonsense!' said Stepan Arkadyevitch. "'You have come. That is the main thing. "'You cannot imagine how much I hope from your visit.' "'Have you known Bronsky long?' she asked. "'Yes. You know we hope that he will marry Kitty.' "'Really?' said Anna gently. "'Well, now let us talk about yourself.' she added, shaking her head as if she wanted to drive away something that troubled and pained her physically. Let us speak about your affairs. I received your letter, and here I am. Yes, all my hope is in you, said Stefan Arkadyevich. Well, then, tell me all. And Stefan Arkadyevich began his story. When they reached the house, he helped his sister from the carriage, sighed, shook hands with her, and went to the courthouse. End of chapter 18 part one chapter nineteen of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this librivox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel when anna entered dolly was sitting in her little reception room with a plump light-haired lad the image of his father who was learning a lesson from a french reading book the boy was reading aloud and at the same time twisting and trying to pull from his jacket a button which was hanging loose. His mother had many times reproved him, but the plump little hand kept returning to the button. At last she had to take the button off and put it in her pocket. "'Keep your hands still, Grisha,' said she, and again took up the bed-quilt on which she had been long at work, and which always came handy at trying moments. She worked nervously, jerking her fingers and counting the stitches.' though she had sent word to her husband, the day before, that his sister's arrival made no difference to her, nevertheless she was ready to receive her, and was waiting for her impatiently. Dolly was absorbed by her woes, absolutely swallowed up by them. She did not forget that her sister-in-law, Anna, was the wife of one of the most important personages in Petersburg, a Petersburg grand dame, and, owing to this fact, she did not carry out what she had said to her husband. In other words, she did not forget that her sister was coming. After all, Anna is not to blame, she said to herself. I know nothing about her that is not good, and our relations have always been good and friendly. To be sure, as far as she could recall the impressions made on her by the Corinians at Petersburg, their home did not seem to her entirely pleasant. There was something false in the whole manner of their family. But why should I not receive her, provided only that she does not take it into her head to console me thought dolly i know what these christian exhortations consolations and justifications mean i have gone over them all a thousand times and they amount to nothing dolly had spent these last days alone with her children she did not care to speak to anyone about her sorrow and under the load of it she could not talk about indifferent matters she knew that some way or other she should have to open her heart to anna and at one moment the thought that she could open her heart delighted her, and then again she was angry because she must speak of her humiliations before his sister, and listen to her ready-made phrases of exhortation and consolation. She had been expecting every moment to see her sister-in-law appear, and had been watching the clock, but, as often happens in such cases, she became so absorbed in her thoughts that she did not hear the doorbell, Hearing light steps and the rustling of a gown, she looked up, and involuntarily her jaded face expressed, not pleasure, but surprise. She arose and threw her arms round her sister-in-law. "'Why, have you come already?' she cried, kissing her. "'Dolly, how glad I am to see you!' "'And I am glad to see you,' replied Dolly, with a faint smile, and trying to read, by the expression of Anna's face, how much she knew. "'She knows all,' was her thought, as she saw the look of compassion on her features." Well, let us go upstairs. I will show you to your room, she went on to say, trying to postpone as long as possible the time for explanations. Is this Grisha? Heavens, how he has grown, said Anna, kissing him. Then, not taking her eyes from Dolly, she added with a blush, No, please, let us not go yet. She took off her handkerchief and her hat, and when it caught in the locks of her dark curly hair, she shook her head and released it, "'How brilliantly happy and healthy you look!' said Dolly, almost enviously. "'I!' exclaimed Anna. "'Ah! Heavens! Tanya! Is that you, the playmate of my little Sir Rosa?' said she, speaking to a little girl who came running in. She took her by the hand and kissed her. "'What a charming little girl! Charming! But you must show them all to me!' She recalled not only the name, the year, and the month of each— but their characteristics and their little ailments, and Dolly could not help feeling touched. Come, let us go and see them, said she, but Vasha is having her nap now. It's too bad. After they had seen the children, they came back to the sitting-room alone for coffee. Anna drew the tray toward her, and then she pushed it away. Dolly, she said, he has told me. Dolly looked at Anna coldly. She now expected some expression of hypocritical sympathy "'but Anna said nothing of the kind. "'Dolly, my dear,' she said, "'I do not intend to speak to you in defense of him, "'nor to console you. "'It is impossible. "'But Dushenka, dear heart, "'I am sorry, sorry for you with all my soul.' "'Under her long lashes, "'her brilliant eyes suddenly filled with tears. "'She drew closer, "'and with her energetic little hand "'seized the hand of her sister-in-law. "'Dolly did not repulse her, but her face still preserved its forlorn expression. It is impossible to console me. After what has happened, all is over for me. All is lost. And she had hardly said these words ere her face suddenly softened a little. Anna lifted to her lips the thin, dry hand that she held and kissed it. But, Dolly, what is to be done? What is to be done? What is the best way to act in this frightful condition of things? We must think about it. All is over. Nothing can be done, Dolly replied. And, what is worse than all, you must understand it, is that I cannot leave him. The children. I am chained to him, and I cannot live with him. It is torture to see him. Dolly, Galupchik, he has told me, but I should like to hear your side of the story. Tell me all. Dolly looked at her with a questioning expression. "'Sympathy and the sincerest affection were depicted in Anna's face. "'I should like to,' she suddenly said, "'but I shall tell you everything from the very beginning. "'You know how I was married. "'With the education that Maman gave me, "'I was not only innocent, I was stupid. "'I did not know anything. "'I know they said husbands told their wives about their past lives, "'but Steva,' she corrected herself, "'Stefan Arkadyevitch never told me anything.' you would not believe it, but, up to the present time, I supposed that I was the only woman with whom he was acquainted. Thus I lived eight years. You see, I not only never suspected him of being unfaithful to me, but I believed such a thing to be impossible, and with such ideas, imagine how I suffered when I suddenly learned all this horror, all this dastardliness. Understand me, to believe absolutely in his honor... "'continued Dolly, struggling to keep back her sobs. "'And suddenly, to find a letter, "'a letter from him to his mistress, "'to the governess of my children. "'No, this is too cruel.' "'She hastily took out her handkerchief "'and hid her face in it. "'I might have been able to admit a moment of temptation,' "'she continued, after a moment's pause. "'But this hypocrisy, "'this continual attempt to deceive me, "'and for whom?' To continue to be my husband, and yet have her? It is frightful. You cannot comprehend. Oh, yes, I comprehend. I comprehend, my dear Dolly, said Anna, squeezing her hand. And do you imagine that he appreciates all the horror of my situation? Continued Dolly. Certainly not. He is happy and contented. Oh, no, interrupted Anna warmly. He is thoroughly repentant. "'He is overwhelmed with remorse.' "'Is he capable of remorse?' demanded Dolly, "'scrutinizing her sister-in-law's face. "'Yes, I know him. "'I could not look at him without feeling sorry for him. "'We both of us know him. "'He is kind, but he is proud, "'and now he is so humiliated. "'What touched me most—' "'Anna knew well enough that this would touch Dolly also—' "'are the two things that pained him. "'In the first place he was ashamed for the children.' "'And secondly, because loving you—yes, yes, loving you more than anyone else in the world,' she added vehemently, to prevent Dolly from interrupting her. "'He has wounded you grievously, has almost killed me. "'No, no, she will never forgive me,' he keeps saying all the time." Dolly looked straight beyond her sister as she listened. "'Yes, I understand that his position is terrible. "'The guilty suffers more than the innocent.' "'if he knows that he is the cause of all the unhappiness. "'But how can I forgive him? "'How can I be his wife again, after she has... "'For me to live with him henceforth would be torment all the more "'because I still love what I used to love in him?' "'And the sobs prevented her from speaking. "'But as if on purpose, each time, after she had become a little calmer, "'she began again to speak of what hurt her most cruelly. "'She is young, you see. She is pretty.' she went on to say. "'Do you realize, Anna, for whom I have sacrificed my youth, my beauty, for him and his children? I have worn myself out in his service. I have given him the best that I had. And now, of course, someone younger and fresher than I am is more pleasing to him. They have, certainly, discussed me between them, or, worse, have insulted me with their silence. Do you understand?' and again her jealousy flamed up in her eyes. "'And after all this he will tell me?' "'What? Could I believe it?' "'No, never. It is all over. All that gave me recompense for my sufferings, for my sorrows. Would you believe it? Just now I was teaching Grisha. It used to be a pleasure to me. Now it is a torment. Why should I take the trouble? Why have I children it is terrible because my whole soul is in revolt instead of love tenderness i am filled with nothing but hate yes hate i could kill him and dushenka dolly i understand you but don't torment yourself so you are too excited too angry to see things in their right light dolly grew calmer and for a few moments neither spoke what is to be done anna "'Consider and help me. "'I have thought of everything, "'but I cannot see any way out of it.' "'Anna herself did not see any, "'but her heart responded to every word, "'to every expression in her sister-in-law's face. "'I will tell you one thing,' said she at last. "'I am his sister. "'I know his character. "'His peculiarity of forgetting everything.' "'She touched her forehead. "'This peculiarity of his, "'which is so conductive to sudden temptation.' but also to repentance. At the present moment, he does not understand how it was possible for him to have done what he did. Not so. He understands, and he did understand, interrupted Dolly. But I... You forget me. Does that make the pain less for me? Wait. When he made his confession to me, I acknowledged that I did not appreciate the whole horror of your position. I saw only him, and the fact that the family was broken up. I was sorry for him. But now that I have been talking with you, I, as a woman, look on it in a different light. I see your suffering, and I cannot tell you how sorry I am. But, Dolly, Dushenka, while I fully appreciate your misfortune, there is one thing which I do not know. I do not know... I do not know to what degree you still love him... "'You alone can tell whether you love him enough to forgive him. "'If you do, then forgive him.' "'No,' began Dolly, but Anna interrupted her, kissing her hand again. "'I know the world better than you do,' she said. "'I know how men such as Steva look on these things. "'You say they have discussed you between them. "'Don't you believe it? "'These men can be unfaithful to their marriage vows.' but their homes and their wives remain no less sacred in their eyes. Between these women and their families, they draw a line of demarcation, which is never crossed. I cannot understand how it can be, but it is so. Yes, but he has kissed her. Wait, Dolly, Dushenka. I saw Steva when he was in love with you. I remember the time when he used to come to me and talk about you with tears in his eyes, I know to what a poetic height he raised you, and I know that the longer he lived with you the more he admired you. We always have smiled at his habit of saying, at every opportunity, Dolly is an extraordinary woman. You have been, and you always will be, an object of adoration in his eyes, and this passion is not a defection of his heart. But supposing this defection should be repeated? It is impossible, as I think. Yes! "'But would you have forgiven him?' "'I don't know. "'I can't say. "'Yes, I could,' said Anna, after a moment's thought, "'apprehending the gravity of the situation "'and weighing it in her mental scales. "'I could. "'I could. "'I could. "'Yes, I could forgive him. "'But I should not be the same. "'But I should forgive him. "'And I should forgive him in such a way "'as to show that the past was forgotten.' absolutely forgotten.' "'Well, of course,' interrupted Dolly, impetuously, as if she was saying what she had said many times to herself. Otherwise it would not be forgiveness. If you forgive, it must be absolutely, absolutely. "'Well, let me show you to your room,' said she, rising and throwing her arm around her sister-in-law. "'My dear, how glad I am that you came. My heart is already lighter, much lighter.' End of Chapter Nineteen. Part One, Chapter Twenty of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Anna spent the whole day at home, that is to say, at the Oblonskys, and refused to see any callers although some of her friends, having learned of her arrival, came to see her. The whole morning was given to Dolly and the children. She sent a note to her brother that he must dine at home. "'Come, God is merciful,' she wrote. Oblonsky accordingly dined at home. The conversation was general, and his wife, when she spoke to him, called him tui thou, which had not been the case before. The relations between husband and wife remained cool, but nothing more was said about a separation, and Stepan Arkadyevich saw the possibility of a reconciliation. Kitty came in soon after dinner. Her acquaintance with Anna Arkadyevna was very slight, and she was not without solicitude as to the welcome which she would receive from this great Petersburg lady, whose praise was in everybody's mouth. But she made a pleasing impression on Anna Arkadyevna. This she immediately realized. Anna evidently admired her youth and beauty and Kitty was not slow in realizing a sense of being, not only under her influence, but of being in love with her, and immediately fell in love with her, as young girls often fall in love with married women older than themselves. Anna was not like a society woman, or the mother of an eight-year-old son, but, by the vivacity of movement, by the freshness and animation of her face expressed in her smile and in her eyes, she would have been taken rather for a young girl of 20 had it not been for a serious and sometimes almost melancholy look, which struck and attracted Kitty. Kitty felt that she was perfectly natural and sincere, but that there was something about her that suggested a whole world of complicated and poetic interests far beyond her comprehension. After dinner, when Dolly had gone to her room, Anna went eagerly to her brother, who was smoking a cigar. "'Steva,' she said, giving him a joyous wink, making the sign of the cross and glancing toward the door go and god help you he understood her and throwing away his cigar disappeared behind the door as soon as she had gone anna sat down upon a divan surrounded by the children either because they saw that their mamma loved this aunt or because they themselves felt a special attraction toward her the two eldest and therefore the younger as often happens with children had taken possession of her even before dinner, and could not leave her alone. And now they were having something like a game, in which each tried to get next to her, to hold her little hand, to kiss her, to play with her rings, or even to cling to the flounces of her gown. There, there, let us sit as we were before, said Anna, sitting down in her place. And Grisha, proud and delighted, thrust his head under his aunt's arm, and nestled up close to her, and when is the ball she asked of kitty next week it will be a lovely ball one of those balls where one always has a good time then there are places where one always has a good time asked anna in a tone of gentle irony strange but it is so we always enjoy ourselves at the Bobrushev's and at the nikitins but at the mezkovs it is always dull haven't you ever noticed that no No ball could be amusing to me, said Anna, and again Kitty saw in her eyes that unknown world which had not yet been revealed to her. For me they are all more or less tiresome. How could you find a ball tiresome? And why should I not find a ball tiresome? Kitty perceived that Anna foresaw what her answer would be. Because you are the loveliest of all. Anna blushed easily. She blushed now and said, In the first place, that is not true, and in the second, if it were, it would not make any difference. Won't you go to this ball? asked Kitty. I think I would rather not go. Here, take it, she said to Tanya, who was drawing off a loose ring from her delicate white finger. I should be delighted if you would go. I should so like to see you at a ball. Well, if I have to go, I shall console myself with the thought that I am making you happy Grisha, don't pull my hair down. "'It is disorderly enough now,' she said, "'putting back the rebellious lock with which the lad was playing. "'I can imagine you at a ball dressed in violet.' "'Why, in violet?' asked Anna, smiling. "'Now, children, run away. Run away. "'Don't you hear? Miss Hull is calling you to tea,' said she, "'freeing herself from the children "'and sending them out of the dining-room. "'I know why you want me to go to the ball.' you expect something wonderful to happen at this ball and you are anxious for us all to be there so as to share in your happiness how did you know you were right oh what a lovely age is yours continued anna i remember well and know this purple haze like that which you see hanging over the mountains in switzerland this haze covers everything in that delicious time when childhood ends and from out of this immense circle so joyous so gay grows a footpath ever narrower and narrower, and leads gaily and painfully to that labyrinth, and yet it seems so bright and so beautiful. Who has not passed through it? Kitty listened and smiled. How did she pass through it? How I should like to know the whole romance of her life, thought Kitty, remembering the unpoetic appearance of her husband, Alexey Alexandrovitch. I know a thing or two, continued Anna. Steva told me, and I congratulate you. He pleased me very much. I met Vronsky at the station. Oh, was he there? asked Kitty, blushing. What did Steva tell you? Steva told me the whole story, and I should be delighted. I came from Petersburg with Vronsky's mother, she continued, and his mother never ceased to speak of him. He is her favorite. I know how partial mothers are, but what did his mother tell you? Oh, many things and I know that he is her favorite, but it is still evident he has a chivalrous nature. Well, for example, she told me how he wanted to give up his whole fortune to his brother, how he did something more wonderful when he was a boy, saved a woman from drowning. In a word, he is a hero, said Anna, smiling and remembering the two hundred roubles which he had given at the station. But she did not tell about the two hundred roubles. Somehow it was not pleasant for her to remember that, she felt that there was something in it that concerned herself too closely, and ought not to have been. "'The countess urged me to come to see her,' continued Anna, "'and I should be very happy to meet her again, and I will go to-morrow.' "'Thank the Lord. Steva remains a long time with Dolly in the library,' she added, changing the subject, and, as Kitty perceived, looking a little annoyed. "'I'll be the first. No, I!' cried the children, who had just finished their supper and came running to their Aunt Anna. All together, she said, laughing and running to meet them, she seized them and piled them in a heap, struggling and screaming with delight. End of chapter 20